Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. This is Bill Landis of Cleveland.com interrupting the beginning of this week's episode because there is quarterback recruiting news. Ohio State has landed its quarterback commitment in the class of 2019. His name is Dewan Mathis. He's from Oak Park, Michigan, four-star prospect, number nine pro-style quarterback in the country, number six player in Michigan, number 252 overall in the country. And the reason that you don't hear the sweet, sweet bass of the beginning of Buckeye Talk right now is because we recorded this episode with a special guest on Saturday because that was the only day our special guest could do it. And then we decided to just record the whole thing uh, on that day because the three of us could get together and it was just kind of easier. So, of course, news was going to happen between us recording on Saturday and when we were going to post it on Wednesday. And, of course, that news happened like 24 hours after we recorded. It happened on Sunday evening. Uh, Dwan Mathis, who made a surprise official visit to Ohio State, on Friday, was there through the whole weekend, announces flip from Michigan State to Ohio State on Sunday evening. So we need to talk about it. And it was funny how it all kind of broke down. Friday Night Lights was last Friday. We talked about that a little bit last week. And because of the threat of inclement weather, which of course didn't happen, but there was a threat of it, so they had to make a decision. They moved it indoors to the Woody Hayes Athletic Center. They moved it out of Ohio Stadium, which meant it was close to the public and close to the media. Um, so typically like we know where to go. We're allowed in the stadium. We can watch the camp. We can shoot video and then we know where to go to talk to guys afterwards. But with this camp being moved indoors, we weren't sure where to go. Myself and a small group of reporters, maybe, maybe four or five of us, um, basically had to pick a door. There's like four or five you can choose from to get in and out of the Woody Hayes center. Uh, we chose the front door cause we're very smart. And we were right. Like we got a, a couple of guys we wanted to talk to ended up coming out. But more important than talking to anybody was seeing Dwan Mathis walk out of the building with his family, um, get escorted by a member of Ohio State's recruiting staff, get in a car and go somewhere else, probably to dinner or something like that. We didn't know he was there. It was a, it was a total surprise. It's not surprising in the end that this happened, but no one expected Dwan Mathis to be at Ohio State last weekend because he was in a very strange position. He's never sort of hidden his affinity for Ohio State while at the same time seeming a little hesitant to go all in with Ohio State after they offered in May, a little over almost two months ago now. Um, He was committed to Michigan State and wanted to be – wanted to act like a commit but I think was struggling with like passing up on this opportunity that was presented to him by Ohio State. Now, the, the weird thing is, like, Ohio State could have had Dwan Mathis probably a year ago if they wanted him. Now, I know you evaluate quarterbacks and you offer them when you're ready, but Dwan Mathis camped at Ohio Stadium last year, Friday Night Lights, and I thought looked very good. I thought he was, at the very least, among the best quarterbacks there. I think there's an argument to be made that he was the best quarterback there. 
And Ohio State has offered plenty of kids because they have good camp performances, in addition to what they evaluate on film. But Thwaite Mathis, I thought, earned an offer. What do I know? Just what I thought. But I went. I wanted to talk to him last July uh, because I thought he was interesting, and I know he was there trying to get this offer. And, and they had their guy in 2018 at the at the time in Emory Jones, and they were looking ahead to 2019. Um, so I waited outside of Ohio Stadium. Dwan Mathis, I think he had to have been the last guy out or among the last guys out because I was the only reporter there when Dwan walked out. We talked for a little bit. He didn't get an offer. It was pretty obvious to me he was upset he didn't get the offer. He didn't say anything crazy, but you could just see in his face that he was, he was kind of beaten up about it, that he didn't get it. And we talked, and then I never wrote the story because I erased the interview from my phone because I'm bad at my job. But that didn't happen last July. He committed to Michigan State in September, and then for all we knew, things were kind of done between Ohio State and Dwan Mathis. Ohio State was going to try to find somebody else. Dwan Mathis was committed. Now we realize that while there wasn't constant communication between Ryan Day and Dwan Mathis, there was enough to keep the line of communication open um, over that time to the point where when they offer in May, things start to get real between the two. Um, but in the meantime, from you know last July until last week, Ohio State – couldn't figure out who its guy was in 2019. Uh, I think two quarterbacks probably emerged to the top for everybody, not just Ohio State, but one was Bo Nix, who is from Auburn, or from Alabama. His dad went to Auburn, and he was never going to go anywhere other than Auburn, and guess where he's committed? Auburn. And then there was Graham Mertz, who committed, who's from Kansas, committed to Wisconsin back in October, um, People kind of sort of caught on to him after that point, Ohio State being among them. Ohio State offered in the winter, uh, tried like heck to get him on campus for an official visit. It just never materialized. It did have him on campus for one day for an unofficial visit while he was in Columbus at a rivals camp. But just nothing nothing that was ever so serious where you thought, okay, they, they have a shot to flip Graham Mertz. And then I think it was last week or the week before, Graham Mertz put something out on Twitter and said he's shutting it down. He's staying with Wisconsin. Um, so, you know, Texas A&M and Ohio State and Notre Dame and all those programs that were hopeful that they could flip him um, could go look elsewhere. And I think Ohio State in that moment or in the days that followed or whatever probably realized that it was best for them to, to zero in on somebody else because they could not go through this class without getting a quarterback. Um, I can't say that emphatically enough. Uh, we've heard about how it's not a great class collectively compared to what just came through in 2018 and what's coming in 2020. And that's true, but Ohio State's roster does not allow it to skip out on a quarterback this year. Now, the only alternative to that might be like getting a JUCO transfer at the end of the year, if you think that can happen. But I think that's leaving a little bit off the chance, too. I think they had to get a quarterback in 2019 because it is possible uh, that Either Dwayne Haskins or Tate Martell is not on the roster after the season, either because Dwayne Haskins is so good and the quarterback class that's heading to the NFL next year is not great that he could potentially be a one-and-done guy with a good season. I know that sounds crazy, and I'm not trying to, to speak out of turn, but but I do think that's possible. It's not impossible. There's not a 0% chance of that happening. And the other thing is if it doesn't happen and Dwayne Haskins is a multi-year starter – Tate Martell could very well decide he wants to go somewhere else and play. Um, and that wouldn't be out of the ordinary. That happens at this position. Guys don't want to sit and be backups, especially guys who are as talented as Tate is. So if he gets a whiff that he's going to be a multi-year backup and he won't get his time to be on the field, legitimately be on the field at Ohio State until 2020, I think he could look elsewhere. 
And you just have to plan for that. You have to plan for that. I think in general you have to have the quarterback in every class, but you have to plan for something like that too. So that's why it was so important to get a guy in 2019. And Ohio State got him and Dwan Mathis. Now, what made the weekend uh, even like more intriguing, I guess, was the fact that they had Brian Maurer on campus, and he is a three-star 2019 quarterback who came up from Florida, who was coming up here to earn an offer. I, I think if Ohio State like had its way, it wouldn't have had Mathis and Maurer up on, on the same weekend. It just kind of worked out that way because this was the last weekend you could have guys in for official visits until the fall. So they had no choice. If Dwan wanted to come, he had to come now. Um, but Maurer was already here. He was coming up a throw for day and never Meyer to earn an offer, and he earned it. He got it on Saturday. I, I didn't think they would do it um, because I, I thought it was possible that that kind of maneuver could backfire if you – have been going sort of round and round with Dwan Mathis, and you finally get him in for his official visit and things are going in the right direction, and then all of a sudden you offer another quarterback while he's there, I think Dwan Mathis can take a step back and say, like, what's going on here? Like, we're, we're I'm doing this here. I'm showing you that I'm interested. I, I want to come to your program, and while I'm here, you offer somebody else in my class? Like, that, what's up? So I thought that was possible. Maybe in hindsight it was kind of foolish to think that was possible, and I guess it ended up not mattering at all. I think in the end what happened, and it probably worked in Ohio State's favor, is that they offered Maurer while Mathis was here to sort of put even more heat on Mathis to get this flip done this weekend. It's probably going to happen anyway because I don't think that Dwight Mathis was going to come here on an official visit without it ending in a flip. Um, but it was just interesting to see Dwight Mathis and Maurer here in Ohio State have these two 2019 guys. I think in the end maybe they would have been okay with either one. Um, but Mathis was clearly – or not clearly, but but – at least a little bit ahead of, of Maurer. They've known they've known Dwan longer, they've evaluated him longer, have better relationships with him. Um, I think it's possible that Dwan has a greater upside. He's ranked a little higher now. I don't think that matters much because um, Maurer is very good. Got to go to Army. He's really fast, um, sneak, sneaky kind of athletic guy, and has blown up in the last few weeks. He did perform really well at the Elite 11, um, was a finalist there, and will be at the opening next week. So he's a good quarterback. But with Dwan Mathis now committed, I think that – Brian Maurer will like a look elsewhere. And in Dwight Mathis, Ohio State gets a quarterback with, I, I guess the best way to describe him is like upside, which I know is just sort of like a cliche thing when you can't say anything original. But he's 6'4", just a shade under 200 pounds. He runs really well. He's got sub-11 track times in the 100 meter. I think there's been times in his high school career where he's been used as a receiver. Um, he's probably more advanced at the moment as a runner than he is as a passer, which is fine. He's got another year of high school ball ahead of him. He's not. He's not – um, such a developmental prospect that you would like label him as like a dual threat guy who can't throw. Like I think that that would be too strong of an indictment on Dwan Mathis. I just think like his pop, his passing needs some polishing. Sorry for popping peas. Um, but this class in general does not have a lot of ready-made guys. They're they're rare that you come across them in in any recruiting class. There were two five-star guys last year who can probably play right away. Um, there are no five-star prospects in this class. Graham Mertz might end up being one, but there are no five-star prospects. There are very few even high four-star prospects at the quarterback position in this class. Um, so I think it's okay that you get sort of a more developmental guy in Dwan Mathis. What was more important is just getting a guy because they had to get a guy for all the reasons I said earlier. They had to get a guy in 2019, and they got him in Dwan Mathis. And before we get to the episode, I wanted to quickly uh, answer two questions that were sent in specifically in regards – in regard to Mathis. Um, 
First one was emailed in, uh, BuckeyeTalkPod at gmail.com. Tyler Gleim said, how would you rate the mobility of Dwan Mathis? Is he mobile enough to run 10 to 15 times per game? I think, yeah, if you, if you watch his film, he's a, he's, he's a very fluid runner. He looks very comfortable doing that. Um, I'll say two things. Well, I'll say one thing. I, I think the days of Ohio State's quarterback running 10 to 15 times are in the past. Um, I just think it's been made clear to Urban Meyer that and this is not a knock on JT Barrett, so please don't take it that way. Just in general, I don't think you can win, and, and I think Nick Saban realized it at halftime in the national championship game last year. You, I don't think you can win a national title with a quarterback that is so reliant on the quarterback runner with a quarterback with the best thing he does is run. Um, I just don't think it happens anymore. I think defensives have not caught on, but there's just so many good athletes on that side of the ball too that it's not a novelty anymore, and you got to switch it up, which is why you see all the RPO stuff come in. And that's like, oh, I think that's why Ohio State is trending more toward having a little more arm talent, if you want to call it that, at the high school level um, or, or projectable arm talent at the high school level that maybe they've cared about in the past. Um, so Mathis is a good runner. Um, I think it's okay to label him as a dual threat because he is that, but I think he has the potential to be a very strong thrower as well, and I would not worry about him running 10 to 15 times a game because I wouldn't worry about any Ohio State quarterback running 10 to 15 times per game other than Tate Martell because he's so good at it. But I think in general the offense is trending a little bit away from that. The quarterback run will not go away completely because it's a numbers game. Urban Meyer talks about it all the time. You go from playing 10 on 11 to playing 11 on 11. He's not going to voluntarily give that up because he thinks they need to throw more. Like the read option's not going away. The quarterback run's not going away. I just don't think it's going to be as much of a crutch as it's been in the past. Um, but I think Dwight Mathis is a guy who, who run, certainly runs well enough to get you out of a jam, and, and I think that that will remain important for Ohio State. The other question that came in uh, was on Twitter, and it was from uh, – excuse me – Nick Cianciolo, who said Mathis is in and gave his commitment on Friday Night Lights. Mauer gets an offer on Saturday morning. Are they thinking of taking two quarterbacks? Um, I think that maybe they're thinking it and like hopeful they can pull it off. I think it's very difficult to pull off under any circumstances because of all the reasons I laid out before with Tate Martell and Dwayne Haskins. Like Guys want to play. The only one guy can play, and they all want to play. So I think it's hard to get two. I think as it specifically relates to Mauer, he wouldn't – he. I don't think would enter a two quarterback situation in, in his own class. Um, he's from Ocala, Florida, just outside of Gainesville, not just that little close to Gainesville. And he, I thought laid it out pretty clear when we talked to him last week that Florida has a commitment in 2019 in Jalen Jones. And he doesn't think that Florida is a viable option for him because they already have a commitment. So I just can't imagine that he would commit to Ohio state after Dwan Mathis commits. Um, he should be putting out a top five soonish. Um, maybe Ohio State's on there because he f- likes Ohio State and you know wants to give a nod to Urban Meyer and Ryan Day for considering him. I think that happens sometimes. Um, but I would be very surprised if he picked Ohio State or even gave Ohio State serious consideration now that Ohio State has a commit. And he has other offers. He has West Virginia, he has Tennessee, he has Texas A&M. I think if he goes to the opening and performs well again, he can drag it out a little longer and get some more offers and, and suddenly become a very hot commodity because the quarterback class is running out of viable options and he's one of them. So um, I think he'll be okay. I don't think Ohio State's going to take two, and I, I – can say with near complete certainty that if they do have two somehow, it's not going to be Dwan Mathis and Brian Maurer. So that's out of the way. 2019 quarterback out of the way. 
And we can start talking about other things because there are more interesting, not more interesting, but more pressing things to talk about because the season's around the corner, which is why we talked to our guest this week. It's Phil Steele. He's the purveyor of America's finest college football preview magazine, and we got him on Buckeye Talk. We talked to him for about 20 minutes about Ohio State, where everything fits in the big picture, certain position groups on Ohio State, why he has them ranked where he does. Um, spun that off a little bit into some more conversation about the position groups and, and a particular receiver and why. There is like a national perception about Ohio State receivers that seems to differ from the local perception of Ohio State receivers. And I don't know why I'm telling you about everything we talked about because you can just listen to it right now. Play the bass. Here's Buckeye Talk. Welcome back to a hard-hitting college football Buckeye Talk. That's right. That's right. Hard-hitting, informative college football talk happening on this podcast. And, and why is that going to happen? Because we have a guest. <laughs> it's not just us. And now get ready for this. Get ready for what I'm about to say. This week's Buckeye Talk brought to you by blank. Brought to you by blank. Because that might be something that I'm going to start saying someday on Buckeye Talk. And it's not going to be a blank at the end of it. How about that? Is it going to be like, are you going to superimpose the sound of a, the name of a sponsor? Like, brought to you by... So and so productions. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live. When the day comes when I'm saying that for real, I'm gonna dedicate my life to our sponsors. I'm gonna be so grateful. You're gonna sell out faster than anyone's ever sold. Oh out. my god, it's gonna be beautiful. Um, but that's not yet. But what we do have today is a fantastic Buckeye talk with Bill Landis, Tim Bielek, and Doug Maurice, your Cleveland.com Ohio State coverage team, and our special guest, Phil. Steel, college football expert, the Phil Steele College Football Magazine came out nationwide yesterday. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, the 27th, came out on Tuesday, the 26th. Phil joined us. We talked all about Ohio State. We talked about the Big Ten. Great conversation. Here's what else we're going to get to today. Groundhogs in Landis's basement, Chipotle's expanded menu, a cheesesteak wrapped with a pizza slice around it, poutine investment, and how many roller coasters Tim Bielek can ride in four hours. How about Ooh, that? I got a good roller coaster story, too. Really? Actually, I got two of them, yeah. So that's a four-hour Buckeye talk, so strap in. But, and we're, before we get to Phil, we're going to get to Phil early, but can we get to the fart of the day, which is what again? Five-star approved reviews for today. I was listening to you guys actually on the way to Kings Island, and I think you got, like, I noticed apparently Bill called me the official fart guy. Oh, yeah. That's, that's we'll a, get you a t-shirt. Wear, wear it with pride. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the homage shirt that says, I, I heart the fart. That's <laughs> a shirt for real? Yeah, that's a shirted homage. I think it's meant for, like, little kids or whatever. We should just get it and then, like, put in periods between the F-A-R and T. Oh, yeah. That could be our thing. We have a lot of things. All right, what's the review? All right, there's a couple that are interesting. I'll start with the worst one. All right, we'll start with a two-star review from Talma Barak. He says, 45 minutes on a 20-minute redshirt question. Talma says, most of the time, great. Please, we don't have to hear the same point five times said slightly differently. Two hours for a June podcast is nuts. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of knew it. While it was happening. Yeah. What's the deal with red shirts? Yeah. All right. We won't do that again. 
Well, that's why we, that's why I gave you the big topic list because we're going to be quick. We're going to dance. We're going to be boom, boom, in and out. All I, I also last week for the first time in the description on your various podcast apps and also on the Cleveland.com post that had the podcast broke up. Like, I gave you a schedule of what we were talking about, and it was laid out to you very clearly that there was a 45-minute redshirt conversation. Was your head in your hand as you were typing that out? Yeah. The first thing yeah. is, Doug and Bill discuss redshirts. 47 minutes yeah. later, they move on. Unbelievable. Like, wow. Again, we blame the editor. Yep. What else? We fired All him. right. We'll go with Shep Zella, who calls us a podcasting tour de force. Every week, Doug, Bill, and new Ari... <laughs> Take us on a feature film length thrill ride through the world of Ohio State sports and fast food. I'd also like to check new Ari next to the things that I've been called on this podcast. That's, that's, yeah. I think that's about the it's third like new Coke. Yeah. <laughs> Doug's epic rants and tangents are a national treasure we should be advertising to tourists in foreign countries. Any sports podcast that can remain as must listen in the quiet days of the off season as it is in the heat of competition deserves five stars in my book. Thank you, Shemzilla. I feel like that would be like new immigration policy for people who like don't want anyone else coming into America is you just start playing Buckeye talk at the border and people come up <laughs> and they're like, what? This is, what's the deal with robots? I'm good. I'm leaving. Yeah. When I, was, I don't want to come anymore. When I was in Toronto, I admittedly should have told more people about Buckeye Talk. Maybe I should have had it. Maybe you should have got a t-shirt. We do. We do have a question from Canada this week, by the way. How about that? Yep. All right. Great White North. So listen, um, we're going to get to Phil Steele right now. Phil Steele's magazine, it's called Phil Steele's 2018 College Football Preview. Um, it's really good. It's super in-depth. If you've never read it, uh, I think we would give it our recommendation. And listen, there's a lot of good college football preview magazines. Like, it's an industry. And... I'm sure you guys read some of them. Some of you don't. But, like, there's a lot of good stuff out there. This is a really good one. It covers every team in the country. It provides some good national context. And I know we do this, although mine got stolen a couple years ago at Big Ten Media Days. And Phil had autographed it to me. So there's somebody out there with the Phil Steele magazine that says, Doug. And then it's signed Phil Steele. And guess what? You're not Doug. I'm Doug, and you have my magazine, so give it back. So anyway, we give a high recommendation to Phil Steele. Mm -hmm. He joined us. We talked about Ohio State. So enjoy this interview. And then when we're done with that, we're going to come back, and we're going to break down this magazine even more. And then we're going to talk about what a groundhog did to Landis's basement. So honored to be joined by Phil Steele, author of the grandest, most gigantic, most informative College Football Preview Magazine in America. Phil, how many years of the magazine now? 24th year this year. So next year's the big 25th uh, anniversary edition. And then you're going to retire and go right off into the sunset, right? <laughs> I don't think that's happening, Doug. I think we're going to be doing the, the preview magazine for quite some time. Well, we're glad for that. And just, I, I, I did a story on you, Phil, I can't even remember, probably more than 10 years ago now. I just want to make sure people know this is coming out of Northeast Ohio. Can you just give the people listening to this podcast a little background into your your life as a football analyst, your your Ohio roots, and sort of how you got into this? Yeah, I started uh, doing a, a football newsletter way back in 1982, and uh, I would buy all the preseason magazines that were out there. 
And frankly, they just never had enough information in there for me. So uh, I started compiling the information myself about, uh, I'd say about 27 years ago. And then somebody in the office said, why don't you put this into a magazine? So I tried it the first year. It was black and white. It was newsprint. I think there was 188 pages back then. Uh, I only covered 88 teams. But once people got their hands on it, it just had more information in it than any other magazine out there. So each year it's grown a little bit bigger. And uh, now we're up to 352 pages, full color. And you're right, Doug. You know, a lot of people don't even realize I'm from the Cleveland area. They all think I'm a, I'm a national guy and, you know, from some other part of the country. But uh, right here in Cleveland. All right, Phil. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And, and we're going to dig in on Ohio State a little bit. And, and the one thing that struck me, having read your magazine year after year, is as you analyze Ohio State, and maybe especially in the Urban Meyer era, but even before that with Jim Tressel, do you find that year to year, the Ohio State team that you're analyzing is often fairly similar? And here's what I mean. They have good talent. If everything comes together, they have a shot to win the national title. Like, is that, do you find yourself as you go through the Buckeyes, that's a general vibe for you most of the time? Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, you know, sort of like the, the Alabamas of the world. But uh, I think when you look at the recruiting classes that Urban Meyer brings in, and probably the one position that sums up what you just said, Doug, is the defensive backs. You know, it's a, it's a position where they can lose all four starters in the secondary, and they're still going to have one of the elite pass defenses in the country. Some guys are going to emerge and become stars. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of first-year starters for Ohio State head off to the NFL the very next year in the secondary. So I think the secondary sort of sums up the entire team. But you hit it right on the head. It's pretty much uh, with the talent they have on hand, I think every year they're a national title contender. I don't want to give – we like we want to sort of like – preview the magazine without giving away the whole cow. So, like, I want to dance around a little bit. But w one thing that I think obviously is the thing that so many Ohio State fans are, are going to be centered on is the quarterback play. And the thing I want to ask you about, Dwayne Haskins, and just as a tease for people, you rate all the position groups. You have the quarterback position group for Ohio State rated lowest for the Buckeyes compared to all the other position groups, and that's certainly understandable. What's it like for you? I know you watch game after game and go through all the film. What's it like trying to evaluate somebody like Dwayne Haskins that we've pretty much only seen in garbage time? We know he made the big plays in the Michigan game, but this happens every year in college football, but especially at the quarterback position, what's it like trying to evaluate guys who haven't played that much yet? Well, and you know, when you look at Ohio State and the number 38 quarterback ranking, I'm actually a little bit higher on Dwayne Haskins than that, but it's tough to do a projection. And there are so many, you know, I'm, I'm studying 130 teams, and there are a lot of teams that have established quarterbacks that have had big-time stats. So it's tough to put him ahead of those rankings at the start of the year. But I'm a Dwayne Haskins fan. I think he's very accurate. He's got a live arm. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more downfield passing with Dwayne Haskins than you saw with J.T. Barrett. And you had to be impressed with how we did when the lights came on. The Michigan game, for example, you know, stepping into the game, you're thinking, okay, they're going to run a conservative offense. Then all of a sudden he hits a big pass play down the sideline, runs uh, about 25 yards for the, that touchdown. They, they had a big game in a big game. And uh, I think that's a, a big plus for Ohio State this year. I'm thinking that the, the quarterback position is not going to take a, a major drop off, even losing a longtime starter like J.T. Barrett. Phil, you have uh, Ohio State's uh, quarterback unit 38th, which makes sense with what you just said. But I'm curious, when you maybe have a little bit of a gut feeling 
that Dwayne Haskins will be good and you said he's a guy that you like? Like, how do you balance that when you make these lists and is it tough to maybe not put Dwayne up a little higher when you think he's good, but you could also get some backlash for rating a guy who has not played yet that high? Yeah, well, I, I tend to, to rate some guys high in the magazine that haven't played yet, but, uh, you know, like I said, there's just so many where you're making the argument. Now, I did put Haskins 13 Big Ten this year, so, you know, I've got him up there right behind Trace McSorley and Shea Patterson. I'm, I'm that high on him as far as the individual quarterback goes, but to be, uh, to have the unit so unproven, which they are right now, uh, it's tough to put him any higher than the number 38 coming into the season. Phil, there's a unit that I, I want to get to. Because it's the, I, I, I'm so fascinated. We're constantly dissecting this unit at Ohio State. It's the receiver group. You have them as the third ranked receiver group in America. I continue to have a lot of questions about this receiver group because I don't see a Devin Smith. I don't see a Michael Thomas. I don't see a game breaker. I feel like there are other top 25 teams that do have individual game breakers. I feel like they're solid. I don't know that they scare defenses, but I also understand that as an Ohio State writer, I don't have the national context to know, well, you know, how do they compare to everybody else? And, and a guy like you has that. What did you see in Ohio State's receivers that led you to rank them as a top five unit in the country? Uh, I think it's going to be the overall depth, and I think this is the year they finally emerge. I know the last couple of years, Urban has been saying a lot of great things about the receiving core. I haven't echoed those sentiments the last couple of years, but I really like the depth at the slot position. You're looking at Paris Campbell and Demario McCall. I think those two guys are both ready to really emerge this season. Then you take a look at an Austin Mack, a McLaurin, a Hill, and a Victor uh, at the receiver spot. There's a lot of good depth here at receiver. They've got good size. Most of the guys out there are, are top to six foot by uh, marker. They all have good speed. Uh, I need to see a tight end emerge, but I think we're going to see one emerge this year. They've got a lot of quality candidates for it. And I uh, just want to add together all the numbers and, and put together the, the, the uh, position. Uh, they came up number three in my rankings. Phil, going to the other side of the football, the defensive line, you have Ohio State ranked number two, only to Clemson, understandably so. Um, we know Ohio State's lost three three guys who are mid-round draft picks um, this April, but we've contended that this year's defensive line, particularly at end, could probably be even better at the top end. Do you kind of agree with that sentiment? Uh, I think they're right up there with last year's. And I thought last year's defensive line was excellent. I think this year's defensive line is excellent as well. And, and really coming into last year, I question the fact that, you know, wow, all, everybody's returning. Uh, what are they, how are they going to get some time for these guys? So it's almost like the, uh, the guys like Nick Boza and Jeremiah Jones stepping in, uh, are going to get a little more time on the field because they're not rotating as much. And, and that's going to be a positive. So I think they're a really good defense line. You talk about Clemson's defensive line. Yeah, I thought they were going to be in a rebuilding year this year at Clemson. Uh, I thought all four guys were going to leave early for the NFL. And then one by one, all four guys opted to return this year, you know, they just uh, kept coming back, and uh, I think Clemson does have the best defensive line in college football. Phil, um, one of the things that I think has is a stat that we use of yours a lot, and I think I, I cited this stat a million times a couple years ago, uh, is the experience of a team. I think in 2016, by your numbers, uh, Ohio State was the least experienced team in college football, or very close to it, and we saw that team make a college playoff run. I know this year Ohio State's not as experienced as they were last year. My question is, having done this through the years, 
I, I find the experience chart you do with returning starters and number of games and that kind of thing so interesting. How much among the elite teams, when we're talking about talent factories like Alabama and Ohio State and Clemson and teams like that, how much do you think experience and, and that kind of thing and, and that kind of context, how much does that matter to winning? Have you found over the years that there's a big correlation when the, the top teams are more experienced, they win more? Or have you found over the years that the best teams are certainly capable of making a national title run with a very inexperienced roster? You know, I think you hit it right on the head there, Doug. You know, I went through the experience chart this year and looked back at the last 10 years, and it is remarkable when you look at the, the top 25 most experienced teams. There's a big jump in the record for those teams, especially when their experience level is much higher than last year. And for the most part, the teams at the bottom of the top 25 uh, and the or the bottom 25 of the experience chart have had a, a much weaker record the next year. The exception, the outlier, it's Alabama, it's Ohio State, and it's Clemson. You look at Alabama, you know, almost every year with all the players they lose early in the NFL draft, they're always number 110, number 103 in my experience chart. This year they come in at number 50, so that's a little scary. They're going to be a double-digit favorite in every game this year. And you touched on the fact that Ohio State was number 34 last year. They're down to number 97 this year. But when you look at the overall talent that they have coming back, uh, the outlying teams, the one that's, that, that burst those numbers and, and are probably in the 15% area that, that, that don't have the same uh, thing as the rest of the country, are the very top teams that recruit so highly. Phil, I want to ask you a little bit about Ohio State sort of in, in the context of the conference. And I'm just curious how close maybe you came or, or how much you even considered the idea of, of putting someone ahead of Ohio State in the East and then number two, maybe picking Wisconsin to beat Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship. Yeah, I can make a case for any of the five teams in the Big Ten. In fact, last year, I, uh, you know, after years and years of picking the SEC as my number one conference, I mean, it, it, well, I had the toughest conference thing, and the article should have just read, who's the number two conference, because yeah. the SEC is the best. <laughs> but the, the last two years, the ACC won it last year. I actually said the Big Ten was the best conference last year, despite not having a national champ, because they had five really good teams. And, and I think they have five legitimate national title contenders this year in Ohio State. Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, and then, as you touched on, Wisconsin. I'll speak of Wisconsin quickly. Uh, number one rated offensive line in the country, and I bounced this off the guys from the Joe Moore Award, which I'm very mm -hmm. pleased to be uh, on this year, and they pretty much uh, echoed my sentiments. And it's the best offensive line in the country. they got Jonathan Taylor, running back, veteran quarterback, and Alex Hornibrook. They always play great defense. The main thing Wisconsin's got going against them this year is the schedule. They have to play Michigan on the road, uh, Penn State on the road, and uh, Northwestern on the road, plus Iowa in Kinnick Stadium. And I don't know if you guys know, but Kinnick Stadium is a pretty tough place to go in and play. Uh, and so if we, uh, and then you move over to the uh, Big Ten East, Michigan State last year was one of the least experienced teams in the country. I think they were number 128. This year they're number 13. They've got Brian Lewerke back at quarterback, 19 returning starters. Penn State, the key to their team is, is quarterback. And Trace McSorley's back. I think Miles Sanders have a big year. Uh, and they play exactly one team on the road that had a winning record last year, and that's Michigan. And then there's Michigan. You know, they're one of nine teams in the country that rank in my top units in all eight position categories. Last year they had one returning starter on defense, and they only allowed 271 yards per game. 
This year they've got nine returning starters on defense. They've got my third-rated defense in the country. And if you ask what's the major flaw Michigan's had the last couple of years, it's quarterback. Yep. Now, I'm not saying Shea Patterson is the second coming of a quarterback, but he's a pretty doggone good quarterback, did great things at Ole Miss. Uh, that might just be the, the piece that uh, uh, completes the equation for them. They're a legitimate contender as well. Remember the last time they came into Columbus, you know, Michigan fans feel that they won that game, that they, they stopped Ohio State short on fourth down. I get that all the time when I'm doing my Michigan radio show. So Harbaugh was very close to winning in Columbus last time, and this is I think this is his best team he's put on the field. So clearly not a slam dunk picking Ohio State to win the, uh, the conference this year. Phil, I would like to jump in with a mini Wisconsin rant from a couple weeks ago that I did. I just think that if Wisconsin was in the East and Wisconsin had to navigate Penn State, Michigan State, Michigan, Ohio State every year, they would not be who they are. I think they slide through the West because the West is down. And, you know, that's a, it's a nice little hypothetical, but that's also a reality. And I know that you make a great distinction in your magazine between, like, how good a team is and then what their chances are of of winning this amount of games, and you factor in schedule a lot. How much of Wisconsin's, yeah, how much of Wisconsin's success is somewhat schedule-based or truly, truly, truly in your heart, not in your heart, in your analysis? In your analysis, do you think Wisconsin is actually close to as talented as those four teams in the East? Uh, yeah, I think Wisconsin has got to the point. I like, I like the way Paul Christ has developed them. This year we're going to learn because last year you look at their uh, road games that they had. They were against Nebraska, Illinois, Indiana, Minnesota. Yep. Well, that's a pretty cake road schedule last year. And this year, Iowa, Michigan, Northwestern, Penn State, and even Purdue is not easy. So we're going to uh, we're going to learn about your analysis there, Doug, this, this year because Wisconsin's playing that schedule. I still have them rated as number seven offense, and I love what they do defensively. I have number ten. And two years ago, 2016, I really downgraded Wisconsin. I thought they were an inexperienced team. I thought they were playing that tough schedule. Remember, they had to play Michigan State on the road, Michigan on the road. They opened up with LSU. They played Iowa on the road. They played Northwestern on the road. I'm like, wow, this team is really headed for uh, the disaster potentially this year. And they went 11-3, and finished number nine in the country. So they did pretty well that year. Uh, last year, they may have been a little bit of a product of the schedule, but I do like the overall talent they have this year. I would like to clarify briefly that Phil, what you do is analysis. What I do is rant like a madman, and that's why we needed to have you. That's why you're on the show to provide analysis. Tim. Phil, you know, you, you referenced the toughest conferences um, list you have. This year you have the SEC and the Big Ten tied at number one. I've done Big Ten power rankings last season. I, I wrote about how strong the Big Ten East is. The SEC West has historically been the toughest division in college football for the last few years. Has the Big Ten East surpassed that, or is it still kind of leaning more towards the SEC in that regard, you feel? No, the Big Ten East has surpassed it. And I tell you what, uh, the majority of the radio shows I do during the offseason are always in the South because, I mean, that's all they talk about is college football. I could do 25 radio shows a day down there. And I have thrown that out. The Big Ten East is the best division in college football. And I haven't got any pushback whatsoever. So even folks in SEC country agree with that statement. I think it's a, a national statement. The Big Ten East is the toughest division in college football. I don't think of any other conference that has four legitimate national title contenders. 
Phil, one of the sections of your of your magazine that I love is the surprise teams, and uh, there's a couple of Ohio State opponents on there this year, Michigan State and Michigan, um, but one that always seems to pop up on the list is TCU, and you have them there, there again this year at, at number 10, um, and I think that's that's obviously a good opponent for Ohio State, but one we know the least about and fans know the least about, and it's obviously a key game in terms of the playoff for Ohio State in, in September. Um, I was just wondering if you could give give your quick breakdown of TCU, why you think they're going to be a surprise team, and, and how good you'll think they'll be this year. Yeah, and first of all, let's clarify what a surprise team is. It's a non-top-10 team that I think has a chance to get the playoffs and even win it all, and that would be TCU because they're not going to be very high on anybody's poll coming into the year. They only have 11 returning starters. Now, what you should fear with TCU is defense. And special teams. I rate them the number three special teams in the country hmm. uh, coming into the season. So look out for them there. And defensively, they've got guys like Ben Banigou up front on the defensive line. Eight and a half sacks last year. They've got uh, Blacklock, Bethley, Collier. When I went over the defensive line with Coach Patterson this year, uh, this is a very fast defense. Uh, maybe one of his fastest yet. He's got outstanding linebackers like Ty Summers and J. Juan Johnson. And the secondary is solid. They've got my number one rated unit in the Big 12, defensive line, linebackers, and defensive backs. And all three of those units rank in my top 12. So defense and special teams, extremely tough. A lot of speed on the defensive side of the ball. Now, what we discussed earlier was the experience chart. Last year, they were number four on the experience chart. This year, they're number 120. Mm-hmm. They do have to replace their quarterback. Uh, Sean Robinson's their new guy. He's athletic. He has a strong arm. And uh, he's great with the deep ball. Patterson thinks he's going to do an extremely good job with the deep ball. At running back, they've got Darius Anderson, who's powerful. And he does his best in the biggest games. And then they've got good depth behind him. And the receiving court two years ago had a real problem holding on to the ball. They led the nation in drop passes. They've gotten better each year. And they've got guys like Cavante Turpin and Jalen Ragor who are dangerous enough at the, at the receiver spot. Now, the biggest question mark for TCU is that offensive line. They only have two starters coming back. But if you go to the, through the history of Patterson and his time at TCU, it's his 18th year there, I think he's had five really inexperienced offensive lines. And of the five, four of them did just as good as they had the previous year. So he does a good job developing the offensive line. I like the fact Ohio State gets him in the third game of the season when they're extremely inexperienced and playing their first big game. And uh, I've got the Buckeyes a 10-point favorite in the game, but uh, TCU is never an easy out. And Gary Patterson, I feel, one of the best head coaches in the country. I know you touched on Michigan, Phil. I want to circle back before we let you go. Michigan opens at Notre Dame. They go to Northwestern. They get Wisconsin at home. They're at Michigan State. Penn State at home. We had theorized a couple weeks ago about the idea of of how big the Ohio State-Michigan game could be this year, whether that last regular season game could be another playoff play-in, as we saw a couple years ago. Um, you mentioned previously how the different shape Patterson could make. This could be a jump year for Harbaugh. Like, how, how possible is it, you think, that, that Michigan could get to that level, where Michigan's not just good, but again, they're a playoff contender this year. Well, uh, if you look at the power poll in the front of my magazine, uh, I know Michigan probably won't be ranked top 10 preseason because they had five losses last year. I have Michigan, my number six rated team in the power poll. So the talent is there. And I probably would have had them a little bit higher if not for that uh, grueling schedule. But, you know, when you do go down the schedule, 
they're not going to be more than a maybe a field goal underdog in any game this year. In fact, uh, I think they're in Vegas right now. They're favored over Wisconsin by three. They're a one-point dog at Michigan State. They're a one-point favorite over Notre Dame. They're a three-and-a-half-point favorite over Penn State. So in Vegas right now, the only game they're more than a one-point dog is the Ohio State game in Columbus at the end of the year. So a, a legitimate threat, definitely a much more experienced team than last year. At the quarterback, they are dangerous this year. Phil, I have one more I wanted to ask you, and it's, it is backtracking a bit, but I, I just remembered it. Um, you have Ohio State's offensive line ranked number seven, and I think there are some fans um, who are concerned about the offensive line because of some of the returning, some of the starters they have to replace. Um, but you have Michael Jordan, uh, the left guard, three-year starter left guard, as a number three draft-eligible guard, but then you also have him as a second-team All-American on your preseason team. And I, I found that a little surprising, mostly because he's, he's far from a household name. Um, I'm curious as to what, what you've seen out of Michael Jordan that, that has you put him on the, as a second-team All-American. Well, you know, I talked to a lot of uh, NFL guys uh, to come up with that All-American list or to come up with the uh, the NFL draft list. So I, I've talked to everybody, you know, Gilbrand, Kuyper, uh, McShea, uh, Phil Savage, and then individual scouts as well. And a lot of the NFL guys are extremely high on Michael Jordan. That has me believing that he's poised and ready for a, a big junior season. He's got two years' experience under his belt. He's got the size you want inside. You know, he's 6'7", 310 pounds. Uh, he did miss the spring with the shoulder injury, but uh, with the NFL guys so high on him, I think he might be poised for a big season this year. Phil, the magazine is wonderful. It's is it, It's out for the world now, right? Out for the world? Uh, yeah, as of today, it definitely is. It okay. just hit the newsstands yesterday, June okay. the 26th. So uh, it is finally out at the newsstands, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, CBS, Publix, Target, Walgreens, and Walmart, and, you know, 352 pages. Now, guys, I'm going to make a statement. I want your objective thought here. I feel the magazine's got three to four times the amount of information of any other magazine out there. What are your thoughts? I agree. <laughs> I agree. Same here. And, and it's I would, too much. It's too much to read. Phil. Well, that's why you need it in June because it takes you like a month and a half to get through it before the season starts, yeah. which is why Phil gets it out when he does. Phil, I would like to make this distinction in the end. A lot of the college football world loves your magazine. I would also like to say that we love you, Phil Steele. <laughs> so thank you for what you do for college football. Thank you for joining Buckeye Talk. Um, and I'm going to come out and see you in the office again someday and do another story, take you out to lunch, because um, this is a great thing you do for college football. So thanks so much. That is awesome. And I, I got to tell you, you guys had a lot of fun uh, doing the show with you today. And enjoy the stuff you guys write on the Ohio State Buckeyes. You helped me keep right on top of them. So uh, a lot of fun today. We should do this more often. Let's do that. We, yep. Listen, Phil. We have a two-hour podcast that we talk about food and robots and all kinds of weird stuff. We could use a little more football analysis, so we'll try to get you on more during the year, all right? All right, that sounds great. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Phil. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. All right. Thanks, guys. So thanks to Phil Steele. Great interview. Great guy. Um, Bill Landis, what did a groundhog do in your basement? <laughs> okay, so... Uh... I was in my living room a couple days, it was uh, Wednesday, Wednesday, sitting in my living room and I heard a noise in the basement. Now my, the, my basement, the only way you can get in there 
at least I thought the only way you could get in there, is to walk through my front door and walk down. Like, there's no garage, there's no back door that lets you into the basement, like in some houses. I have a very old house, and the basement is essentially a bigger crawl space. It's just big enough to, to house, like, the furnace and the water heater, and that's kind of it. Um, it's not finished. And I heard a noise down there. Can you make the noise that you heard? Just like a rustling. Like, it, it sounded like something fell. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. Thump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think anything of it, and then my dog started barking. But then I still didn't do anything, and maybe like ten minutes later I heard it again, and she started barking again. Rustle, rustle, rustle. So then I thought to myself, well, like, there can't be somebody in the basement because they've either been there for a while or... <laughs> they've been there since you bought the house. <laughs> or, or, or they walked in uh, and I didn't realize. They walked past me and walked in the basement and I didn't realize it. But anyway, uh, I went and grabbed my baseball bat. Yeah. So where is the baseball bat kept in your house? By the front uh, door? In the bedroom. In the bedroom? Yeah. Is what? that a Philly thing? Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. What, wood bat or aluminum bat? It's an aluminum uh, Black Magic softball bat that oh, yeah. I've hit a lot of home runs with. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so you and Black Magic, me and Black open Magic, the basement door. <laughs> open the basement door, go down to the basement. I made it halfway down the steps, and then I saw a groundhog taking a dump in the corner of my basement <laughs> and walk back upstairs. And uh, I called Columbus uh, Animal Control, and they're like, we handle puppies and kittens. I was like, well, great, I have a groundhog in my basement. Um, so they referred me to somebody else, um, who, and he, I got lucky, he happened to be uh, near my home. Doing another job, so we got to my house probably about twenty minutes. Um, looked exactly how you would imagine a guy who traps groundhogs in your basement would look like. He was very nice, very professional, and he he walked down the basement, and the groundhog like walked up to him and like crawled up his leg and like was happy to see him. Crawled up his leg, but like not in an aggressive way. Like it like wanted to be petted. Yeah, but guess what? <laughs> what did he scream? Did he? No. Sc- what would you do? I don't care whether... I would have whacked it with a bat if it came within <laughs> six feet of me. Yeah. But he's a professional wildlife wrangler. He's a he's a groundhog whisperer. Yes. So he said, come here, little groundhog. He didn't even have to. He just had to walk down there. Did he have like a groundhog musk on or something? <laughs> Maybe. Did he look yeah. anything like uh, Billy the Exterminator who has that A&E show? No, no, no. This guy was very professional. Um, okay, so did, were you watching this? Did you go like down behind him? I didn't go down until he had it in the trap. And okay. then I went down Smart. there and I had some words with the groundhog. And then uh, he took it out, and we were looking around to figure out, well, I cleaned up the turds, and then uh, we were trying to figure out how it got in, and that I have not figured out. You have not figured out? There, there is a, a a hole under the, I have like a wooden deck as a porch in front of my house, and there's a hole certainly big enough to fit a groundhog, like going underneath that, but then you would eventually hit the foundation of the house, so I don't know how it got from under the patio to inside the house. Um, so we have to have someone come and check that out. But if you're wondering how much it costs to get a groundhog removed from your basement, it's $300. No way. <laughs> yeah. How long was the guy at your house? 20 minutes. Maybe maybe not even that. That's $900 an hour for groundhog yeah. removal. That, yeah. that's it's good a- business. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know who's much cheaper than $900 an hour? Black magic. Black magic. <laughs> yeah, but then I have a dead groundhog on my hands. I don't want to kill it. Why not? I would have killed it if it if it forced me to. If it tried to crawl up your leg yeah, in a non-aggressive yeah, yeah. Or if it like, found a way to walk up the steps and uh, and get into the living room, then it would have been a dead groundhog. But it just stayed in the basement, and uh, it couldn't... I think it, I have a crawl space, a very tiny area of crawl space, like toward the front of the house, and I think that's how it got in. 
And it, it, if you go to the edge of the crossways, you fall down probably about six feet. Yeah. And it couldn't climb back up to, okay. get, to get to where it came from. So that's why it was trapped down there. Okay. Had it, how many times had it gone to the bathroom down there? Just that one time? Or had it been down there for like a week? No, I think, I think what the noise that I heard was the groundhog falling out of the crawlspace <laughs> onto the floor. Um, so, no, oh, it only right. it went to the bathroom twice, like in the corner where I first saw it, and then again once it was in the cage. Yeah. As like one last act of defiance. I think he was kind of waiting for you to open the door before he did his business on your basement floor? I, no, I probably just scared him. I don't well, – yeah. In all fairness, if you were trapped in a strange room and you were scared, you would take a dump. Yes. Right? Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just – yeah. It's you, like, just, you just dropped – What do they call it? Uh, fight, fight or flight or – yeah. Fight or flight. Dump or flight. <laughs> he just dropped – I was going to say, I was at the art museum uh, when I saw this. So I'm thinking, this groundhog must have just dropped a pin in your basement. Nice. Yeah, he definitely dropped the pin in the basement. Call so, back. Also, by the way, you said you didn't want to kill the groundhog. So the groundhog removal guy, what, did he take the groundhog to the groundhog farm where all the groundhogs lived together and frolic? He just said he was going to re-release it into the wild. I don't yeah. know. Maybe he took sure it home, he said that. Maybe he took it home and ate it. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, yeah. The, where's the groundhog, Billy? Oh. Um, it's on wanna, the groundhog farm. I want to give the guy a shout out. And I want to Is sure. he, um, ask him if he wants to sponsor Buckeye Talk for groundhog removal. Yeah. He's the official groundhog removal company of Buckeye Talk. We should bring him on as a guest. I we uh, we didn't I, we should have thought of that for sure. He probably would have come on. He was a very pleasant man. His cell phone uh, ringtone <laughs> was the Blue Jackets Goldhorn. Um, so I don't. I'm not trying to disparage him. He did an excellent job, and his company is called the Wildlife Control Company Incorporated. I think they're based in Dublin. So if you ever have a uh, groundhog in your basement, call the Wildlife Control Company. When you walked down the basement initially, how scared were you? Uh, like when I, when I was going down there uncertain of what was there. Yeah. Uh, not that I didn't think anything was down there. Okay. Um, I guess my fear was like a raccoon was down there because those things are vicious. Um, but I didn't think there was, I just thought something had fallen. Okay. Um, so I wasn't very scared. All right. That's a good groundhog story. Um, number three receiver group in the country for Ohio state. That's the thing that stuck that I, I got stuck on in looking at. Phil Steele's analysis. Um, but I like having national people on because I think we know the Ohio State football team as well as anybody knows the Ohio State football team. Um, but we do not know the national college football context, which is why you need people like Phil Steele in the world. Ohio State, again, just to recap real quick, this is position group rankings. And, like, for instance, Phil made the point when he has the quarterbacks ranked 38, that's not the individual quarterback. That's the group. So he's saying – their backup quarterback has never played. Their third-string quarterback, Matthew Baldwin, is a true freshman coming off an injury. Like He's talking group. He's not just talking Dwayne Haskins. But quarterback group, 38th. Receiver group, third. Running back group, third. Offensive line group, seventh. Defensive line, second. Linebackers, 21. Defensive backs, six. Special teams, seven. We had a little bit of an argument before... The podcast started about that because I was sort of so confused by Ohio State being ranked third. But, Bill, I know you – Tim, I think, was a little uncertain about that number three ranking as well. Bill, you you were not as flabbergasted by the number three ranking for Ohio State's receivers. No, I, I think in, in general three is probably high. Um, I don't know if I would automatically put them at three, but, but I do think – 
I think the perception of the receiver group is off a little bit. And, and I said this to you guys before we started to started recording. I think there's a difference between not, not having a breakout go-to guy and just being a bad receiver group. I, I don't think this is a bad receiver group. And I, I don't know how many people think it is, it is bad, but I do think there are some Ohio State fans who are very underwhelmed by this receiver group and would frankly want, want some different players and, and have wanted some different players since, you know, Michael Thomas and Devin Smith left a few years ago. Um, I think that it is, like Phil said, a deep group. Um, I do like the size and speed, as he mentioned, but I also think, like, people look at this receiver group on a na- on a national level. People look at this receiver group not not with the same microscope that we look at it, and it's a group that brings back all of its production from last year. I think they had 16 people catch a pass last year, and 13 of them are back. That's an absurdly high number, and some of the advanced stats, and I wrote a, a story a couple weeks ago about Ohio State's returning production and what it means, and, and my reference point for that was Bill Connolly, who works for SB Nation, does the S&P Plus analytics rankings, and one of the best markers to predict offensive success is returning receiver production, and Ohio State's returning receiver production I think is best in the country. If not, it's it's among the best in the country, and I think that's why you see a lot of these national magazines, a lot of these national writers very high on the receiver group. Now, the other part of that, too, and that I think deserves to be mentioned is they gathered this information from talking to coaching staffs, and if you talk to Urban Meyer and you said, what's the best position group on your team, he would not hesitate to say receivers. I asked him a question about Dwayne Haskins two weeks ago at the job fair, and he spun it into a comment about how good the receivers are. So he loves this group, and he's going to talk them up, and I think that can lead to them being overvalued a little bit from people who don't watch them every day. Uh, But I do think it is a better group than Ohio State fans at the moment are willing to give them credit for, and I think we're going to see that this year. The one thing that... that um, <sighs> there's I a lot, sorry. No, no. <laughs> God, I had to listen to someone else talk for two whole minutes. <laughs> um, they're nice. They're nice, and, and and that's that matters. They're good guys. That matters. Like let's let's go talk about a receiver room filled with talented guys who are jerks, are negative effects on the roster, create bad energy at practice, get in trouble off the field. Um, let's go talk about that receiver room and talk about how talented they are. And it doesn't matter how talented they are because they're going to screw up the team and they're, and they're going to get suspended. And like, th- that's a problem. So the fact that this Ohio state receiver group is the opposite of that is 180 degrees, good teammates. They like each other. They work hard. They're invested in the program. Uh, that matters. But it only matters so much, and I feel like there's a just – it's the same story. The thing that, that that is hard for me is it's the exact same story as a year ago. And how would you evaluate – because it's the same guys, right? It's the same guys. They're all a year older. The quarterback has changed. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question for you guys is how would you evaluate the receiver play last year? Right, because we're trying to project, but the whole point of this Ohio State group, as you compare them nationally, is you don't have to project necessarily because they've they've proven it. Now, so there's two questions. One is how did you think they played last year, and two is how much better do you think they'll be because a the quarterback changed, and b they're just all another year older and more experienced. So let's start with the first question. How would you how would you describe how they played last year? You can go first. Um, I'd say. 
pretty solid. I mean, we we've said a thousand times that we there's this receiver group doesn't have a lot of wow to it. They do what they do have kind of going back to what Bill said is is pieces that complement each other. You got speed guys in Paris Campbell and Johnny Dixon. You got bigger guys in Austin Mack. Um, and Ben Victor, you have a guy like KJ Hill who's got the best hands on the team who'll just catch everything thrown his way. The thing that's missing, like you said, is a game breaker. It's nothing new to nothing new, but if you don't have a game breaker, it's not a bad thing where you just have a slew of guys who are just are competent guys who could just get the job done. And again, it's it's a matter of we wanted a number one guy to emerge. We didn't get that last year. It's just going to be, can that, can that happen this year with a new quarterback? And I think Bill, Bill can probably answer part two, unless you want him to also answer part one. I do want to answer part one. Cause I, I thought they were good last year. Like, again, they're not great. And I certainly understand wanting a guy like Michael Thomas's best year at Ohio state. I think he caught what, like 55 passes and, I think it's easy looking back to see what Michael Thomas is in the NFL now and think that's what he was when he was here. That's not the case because they just don't operate that way. He was a really good receiver and should have been used more, but he wasn't Calvin Johnson when he was playing at Ohio State. And I think like something has been lost a little bit over the last few years where we're misremembering exactly what Michael Thomas was when he was in college. He was good and underutilized. He wasn't the best receiver in the country when he was here. And I think it's okay to live that way. K.J. Hill had 56 catches last year which is at least on par with Michael Thomas's best year. Paris Campbell had 40. Um, it's just an offense that's designed to distribute the ball around, so you're not going to have a guy who's going to catch 80 balls, um, save for Curtis Samuel a couple years ago because he was the only legitimate playmaker they had on offense. Uh, I thought they were good. I thought they made some tough catches. Uh, the Penn State game sticks out. I think K.J. Hill had a big catch in that game. Austin Mack had the butt catch against Oklahoma. I know they lost that game, but that was a great catch. Max catch against Michigan. I thought more often than not, when the receivers needed to make a play that last year, they did. Um, I don't. The, the Iowa loss was a total disaster by everybody. I certainly don't pin that on the receivers, and I don't really pin the Oklahoma loss on the receivers. Um, I will agree that there is another level for them to get to, but I think that last year the group was pretty solid, and I, I and if I was an Ohio State fan, I would be mostly pleased with what the receivers did last year. Okay, part two is then projecting that forward, okay? So here's my point about part two. K.J. Hill ranked sixth in the, sixth in the Big Ten last year in receptions with 56. Mm-hmm. When you think about this Ohio State receiver group for 2018, how big of a factor is K.J. Hill in your excitement about how good they can be? Is he the number one reason that you're fired up about the receiver group? No. Paris Campbell is. Okay. Paris Campbell ranked 22nd in the Big Ten with 40 catches. Now, there's a huge caveat with that. He had injury issues. Mm -hmm. He basically disappeared from the offense for a couple games um, because of that. Um, So his raw numbers are not indicative of his top end. Yeah. Um, But within that... We still, I think, did not see um, Paris Campbell maximized when he was on the field. Uh, What is your level of excitement and expectation for how much more you expect? Assuming he's healthy, his numbers, his raw numbers would have been better if he had been on the field every game healthy. What is your level of excitement and, and expectation for how much better he can be? 
not just raw numbers, but just better overall? Uh, I think fairly high. Um, he's a guy, and we know we know he's had drop problems in the past. He's a guy that, that relies heavily on the quarterback throwing a well-placed, accurate ball, and I think he'll have that in Dwayne Haskins. And I think he's just going to have more catch-and-run opportunities than he had last year. I think we always say they don't have a game-breaker. They don't have a game-breaker. Um, I think Paris Campbell can be that guy. He's not going to stretch the field vertically. It's just not who he is. But are, there's probably less than four, I don't know, there's probably maybe three or four guys who are on the same level as Paris Campbell in terms of being able to take a catch, of take a ball that he catches five yards within the line of scrimmage and take it 70 yards for a touchdown. And like kind of do it with relative ease because nobody can catch him. I think he can become one of the better playmakers in college football. Yeah, and the way that Ohio State's coaching staff, you know, worked the mesh route in the offense finally really opened things up for him. I expect more of that continued, some slants, more bubble screens, just different ways to really get him the football, really get it on the perimeter, maybe even with JT Barrett not being on the team, incorporate him into um, the the running game a little more. So would you say that, again, assuming he's healthy, if Paris Campbell was used in games and produced in games pretty much equal to what he did last year, would that be, for lack of a better word, a disappointment in your eyes? Because like, you're expecting more. Like allowing for the, the stats he missed in the couple of games that he was injured? Yeah, let's, let's, just, let's just say, let's just take his best eight games and throw out the stats from the games when he either, so the games he didn't play or like he barely played because of the injury. Just like good Paris Campbell. I expect a little bit of an uptick. He only had three okay. touchdowns. I think you'd like a guy like that to score a little more. Yep. Um, but he had, was it 14.6 yards per reception, which was second or third among the regulars behind uh, Johnny Dixon and Terry McLaurin. Um, yeah, I think I think there's there's room for him to improve, but I don't like he doesn't have to double his catch total. He had 40 catches last yeah. year. If he has between 50 and 60, I think that is a a realistic improvement and one that would have a drastic impact on the offense. Okay. Terry McLaurin, 36th in the Big Ten last year with 29 catches for 436 yards. How does Terry McLaurin fit into your excitement and expectation level of the receivers? Uh, like, not a whole lot, to be perfectly honest. I think he's uh, a bit of a luxury um, he's an incredible leader for the team, and I think that matters. But in terms of on-field production, um, I see a gap between the group of receivers that he's in and the group of receivers that Paris Campbell, Austin Mack, and KJ Hill are in. So I don't view him as a top guy. I think he's supplementary, which I think is fine. You need those guys. Um, but he's not. The, the reason I'm high on the receivers is, is doesn't really have much to do with him. Doesn't have a ton to do with the guy who was their third living receiver last year. Yep. And who had Ohio State's, I believe, longest play from scrimmage last season, which was that 83, 84-yard touchdown against Wisconsin in the Big Ten title game. All right. Marcus Baugh was next with 28 catches. He's a tight end. He's gone. Austin Mack tied for 47th in the Big Ten with 24 catches last year for 343 yards. How does Austin Mack factor into your excitement and expectation level of the receivers? Uh, higher than anyone else. So, do you agree with that, Tim? Yes, 100%. I, I think we've been on record on this podcast saying that Austin Mack is our expected breakout receiver, right? Yeah, when uh, at the job fair uh, a couple weeks ago, we got to talk to a group of receivers. It was Johnny Dixon, Terry McLaurin, and Austin Mack. 
And I asked a question about Dwayne Haskins, just like to the group, and Johnny Dixon and Terry McLaurin both deferred to Austin Mack because <laughs> Austin Mack and Dwayne Haskins are now known as 7-Eleven. <laughs> and they're always, and Austin Mack is always open. And I, I buy, I buy the connection between Austin Mack and Dwayne Haskins, and I think that is going to lead to a significant jump in production for Austin Mack. If you want to think of the the signature moment of you know the Michigan game, that what that connection between Haskins and Mack really, I think, got Haskins so much more comfortable in that game, and it led to the game winning touchdown. So. A large, so some decently large portion of excitement and expectation of rationalizing Ohio State being the number three receiver group in the country is based on third-year receiver Austin Mack, who had 24 catches last year, making a fairly significant jump, at least doubling his production, if not more. Yes. Okay. I think that's a fair thing, right? So we're saying... The, 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 if you consider Ohio State the number three receiver group in the country, Austin Mack has to at least double his production, probably more, right? Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah. And then who, Johnny Dixon did not rank in the top 50 in the Big Ten in receptions. How many catches did he have, Tim? Johnny Dixon. Um, he had 18. 18 for 422 yards. So we know all the and big, a team leading eight touchdowns. A team leading eight touchdowns. And we all wrote that. Everybody wrote it. I get it. Eight touchdowns and 18 catches is unbelievable. Um, how much does Johnny Dixon factor into your excitement and expectation of the receivers? Uh, again, not not a ton. I view him more along the lines of Terry McLaurin, but I, I, I do see Johnny Dixon as a guy who can take the top off of defense, maybe more than the other guys. Um, so maybe he's a little less of a supplementary piece than McLaurin, but mostly I view him in that second tier. I have, uh, There's two tiers of receivers in my mind, and the, the three guys on the top are Campbell, Hill, and Mack. And then it's um, McLaurin and Dixon and Victor behind them, and then like Jalen Harris is a wild card that and I think the unproven, be, yeah. yeah, guys with upside who haven't really shown it yet. Yeah, right. Okay, I don't. Do you do you think Bill's characterization of the receivers that way, Tim, is is appropriate? Yes. Notice I didn't say C.J. Saunders. So if that's the case, and I don't disagree with it, we're talking about the number three receiver group in the country being based on a guy with great hands um, who I think is reliable and often overlooked nationally and maybe by Ohio, Ohio State fans, um, but who is just – who I don't know that anybody would ga- would term him a game-breaker. I don't know that I don't think the coaching staff, I don't know, K.J. Hill would term himself a game-breaker. He's a really solid receiver who I think um, is reliable and productive. Yeah. Do you think he scares defenses? Uh, no, scares probably too strong of a word. Okay. But I do I, I do think that like you can label him as like the quote-unquote possession guy, and if Ohio State needs to get a first down and the throw is more than three yards on the field – I think KJ Hill is probably the guy you have circled if you're defending that. I, I love that's my I love that question. Who's your guy on third and seven? We think it's KJ Hill probably yeah. at the moment. Mm-hmm. All right, so he's there. Paris Campbell is in that tier. He is a guy who is super fast. Um, do you think there are still questions about his hands? Yeah, I think there always will be. Do you expect that? Oh, and the guy that we haven't who's not in your tier. Well, I'm interrupting myself again. 
Where do you put Demario McCall in your tiers? We did not mention him. I just I don't know. I don't know. Is he, is he wild card? Yeah. Area? And, but and the only way like he has the potential to be in that first tier because of just how explosive he is when he gets the ball. But I don't know if he's going to get the ball. K, like KJ Hill has to move outside for that to happen. Yeah, we have we've again discussed our way of using the receivers. We have no proof that that's what they're actually going to do. Um, so until we get to that point, we think Paris Campbell and Demario McCall in the slot move KJ Hill outside, and then you're playing KJ Hill, Austin Mack, Johnny Dixon. Terry McLaurin, Ben Victor outside. Mm-hmm. And, and Harris. And Harris. Um, but we have to see proof of that. Okay. So Paris Campbell, super fast, very physical for a guy with that kind of speed. Um, 40 catches last year. Um, a little bit of an injury history. I think that needs to be taken into account one yep. way or the other. And then you have uh, Austin Mack, who had 24 catches last year. So... I get your point about Michael Thomas, but I disagree with it, I think, because to me, Michael Thomas was a guy at Ohio State who had whatever he had, 55 catches or whatever his last year for 900 yards or something. But you knew, you knew anybody who was looking and evaluating Michael Thomas on production on numbers, you knew that he could have had 85 catchers for 1,400 yards if they threw him the ball more. It wasn't that he didn't get open. It wasn't that he dropped stuff. It's just they didn't. They should have used him more, but they that was the year. His last year was the year of too many options. They didn't know what yeah. to do. And I feel like among an offense that included Ezekiel Elliott and Braxton Miller and just a collection of guys that they were trying to get the ball to, the guy who suffered the most was Michael Thomas. Uh, but in the moment, in the moment, I had zero doubt that Michael Thomas could have put up 50% more numbers if given the opportunity. Yeah. I certainly, at the moment, am not under the impression that there's anybody on the Ohio State offense that could could put up 50% more numbers if given the opportunity, that the only thing holding them back is, oh, well, they didn't throw the, the ball enough to that guy. So as we're thinking about Ohio State as the number three receiver group in the country, and, and depth is nice, but you can only put three guys on the field at once. So all I care about is the three guys who are on the field on any given play. And I understand that if there's injuries, that matters. And if a guy's tired, I, they rotate. I get all of that. But I I feel like the three guys that are going to be on the field this year are still a somewhat significant step below putting Michael Thomas, Devin Smith, and Evan Spencer on the field, which is what they put on the field when they won the national championship. And yep. if if we're talking – and and – the discussion is not whether they're bad. They're not bad. The discussion is whether they're elite, whether they're great, whether they're awesome, whether they're game-changing, whether they're the third best receiver group in the country. And to me, I would take Michael Thomas, Devin Smith, Evan Spencer, the way they fit together as a group, the way you had a deep threat, a do-everything guy, and like a hard-nosed, blocking, do-everything-right guy as your three guys, 
there's they're so far above my current expectation level for the three receivers that will be on the field for Ohio State, no matter who the three guys are. It's not even close in my mind right now. I don't know if I put Evan Spencer in that group. I get what the he he caught fifty two passes in four years. Yeah. I know he was a solid blocker and he was a captain and like I, I don't mean to diminish that. Um I just don't I think there are maybe five receivers on this team who can be more productive players as a pass catcher than Evan Spencer mm-hmm. was. And I agree with that, but talking as a group, the gap between Devin Smith and Michael Thomas yeah. and the most dangerous guy that's going to be on the field on a given down for Ohio State this year, I feel right now is a large gap. I do agree with that. So... If we're talking about the third best receiver group in the nation, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a receiver group that's good enough because that's the other thing too here. The other thing is that there's going to be a lot on this receiver group because we think they're going to change the way they operate fundamentally as an offense, and it's going to hinge on the receivers. So, I, I mean, I maybe I'll be – 100% wrong, and we can come back and, and have a great time this season discussing how I didn't believe in the receiver group. But We can also have the conversation about how I was totally wrong and, and completely oversold them. I, I think both are possible. I still feel like a lot of what people talk about is is based on the fact that they're really good guys and they work really hard in practice, and like that does not equate to third best receiver group in the country to me. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with, I, I just, I, I think there's a lot more out there for Austin Mack and a, and a lot of it hinges on him. I think he can get there. He wants to be Michael Thomas. That's yeah. the guy in spring football. I had the discussion about that's what he, he's based his life. Did I write that? You definitely talked to him. Yeah, right? I think I did write I, it. I think I put it in the headline. I'm pretty sure you wrote something like that. It's like you almost wanted him to change his uh, Twitter handle to at Can't Guard Mac. Yes. Can't Guard Mac, Can't Guard Mike. That's a good headline. Yeah. I think Lousy you- story. No, it's an average story, good headline. Yes, because I asked, I asked Zach Smith about it, and Zach Smith started talking about how that Austin Mack, if Michael Thomas eats chicken wings on Wednesday at 6 o'clock, Austin Mack wants to eat chicken wings on Wednesday at 6 o'clock because he wants to live his life like Michael Thomas because he respects Michael Thomas so much. So, um, yeah. Okay. So, again, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm comparing Austin Mack. Of course, of course Austin Mack is not Michael Thomas – Michael Thomas's best year right before he went to the NFL. He hasn't had the chance to do that yet. I get that, but I'm just there's an a uh, we clearly to me here's here's my problem in in a nutshell. <laughs> to the point of the two-star review, I'm going to try to not say the same thing five different ways and turn a 10-minute discussion into a 40-minute discussion. To me, if you're ranking the receiver group really high, you're doing it based on returning production. Yet, when you really analyze your expectations of that group, what you're expecting of them is not based on the returning production. It's based on other guys in that group making jumps. Because the returning production, if they do what they did last year, that's not good enough. So here we are, we're having a discussion. They're third because they return everybody, 
but the guy that we're relying on tied for 47th in the Big Ten in catches last year. So to me, there's a disconnect there. Yeah. That if if you're really if you're basing it Austin Mack, you can't have Austin Mack leading a group that is the third best receiver group in the country right now because he had 24 catches last year. He hasn't shown it yet. He is still all potential. He's all potential. And listen, maybe if he was the best, he might have been the best receiver on the team last year. Then Zach Smith should have played him more. They didn't. They didn't treat him like the best receiver on the team. That's for sure. Yep. They didn't throw to him like that. They didn't play him like that. They didn't behave like it. They didn't view him as the best receiver on the team last year. We, and if we believe they're the third best group, it's because we think Austin Max going to be the third, the best receiver on the team. Last year, he was sixth on the team in catches, or fifth, or whatever it was. That's what I'm talking about. Take a dump in that basement, Groundhog. <laughs> All right, let's get to uh, other groups. What did you think, generally, of the rest of the overall group rankings from Phil Steele? Let's run through the offense real quick. Quarterbacks, 38. Receivers, 3. Running backs, 3. Offensive line, 7. What else jumps out at you to talk about? On the offense, uh, I think quarterback is low. I get why. Like, and and we asked them. It's, I get, it is a little dangerous to project with Dwayne Haskins. He's never played it, and it's a reflection of the group as a whole too. So it's Dwayne Haskins and Tate Martell and Matthew Baldwin. So essentially, three guys who've two guys who've never played, and one guy who's played very little. So I get why they're thirty eighth. Um, I I think part of it should be projecting what you think they're going to be in the end, and. I don't think Ohio State's quarterback situation is going to be the 38th best in the country. I think uh, it's going to be among the top 10. And he has Penn State number one, which I think is, is maybe the more interesting comparison. I, I like Trace McSorley. Um, I think he's very good. He's got a backup with Tommy Stevens. He's an interesting guy. The gap between Penn State's quarterback situation and Ohio State's quarterback situation should not be 37 spots. I will say, uh, just again, there's there's so much information in this magazine that you, it's, it, you can't get to everything. But his preseason Big Ten team, first-team quarterback Trace McSorley, second-team Shea Patterson from Michigan, third-team Dwayne Haskins, Ohio State, ahead of Brian Lewerke from Michigan State, who had a good year last year. Mm-hmm. So that tells you something. Unit rankings within the Big Ten quarterbacks, Penn State 1, Michigan 2. No, Michigan State's 2. Oh, he has a big tie. He's got... Iowa, Northwestern, four- Michigan State, Michigan, all tied at two. Yeah, he's got a four-way tie there. The other thing I found interesting, he has Northwestern ranked ahead of Ohio State at quarterback, but Clayton Thorson is not in his, either of his four all-Big Ten teams. Well, I think, and, and Phil would tell you this, he's talking about group. Yeah. And I, and I think that's it's a fair distinction, and it's a reasonable distinction of like, okay, well... If something happens to Dwayne, to Dwayne Haskins, they're putting a guy in the game who's never taken a snap before. If Joe Burrow was on this roster, I'm sure Ohio State would be higher as a unit. That's an interesting discussion. I wonder what it would be. We should have asked him that. Well, I was going to ask him that, but it's like I don't want to – no offense to Joe Burrow. I don't want to waste a Joe Burrow question on a 20-minute interview when we had a 1,000 other questions. Um, so I get that, but I also get – so you think – Trace McSorley should absolutely be the first-team Big Ten quarterback, though. Yeah. Yes. You think he's – I can't find the page. He has Trace Mix. Who's the number two? Like you say, Penn State has the number one quarterback group in the country. Yeah. Who's number two? West Virginia with Will Greer. Run through the top ten. 
West Virginia has re- Will Greer returning. Uh, UCF has Mackenzie Milton returning. Um, Auburn has Jared Stidham returning. Missouri has Drew Locke. Uh, Georgia has Jake Fromm and Justin Fields coming in. Arkansas State is number seven. Florida State's eight. Washington is nine, and NC State is ten. Who's the Florida State quarterback? It's DeAndre oh, Francois and uh, Blackman. James was it James Blackman? Oh yeah, the guy who played yeah. for him. Yeah, that's yeah. See, like they, that's a good unit ranking because it's like they get back the starter who was good before, and then they also have the guy who played all last year. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Finley at NC State's an NFL prospect, and Jake Browning at Washington has a noodle arm. Yeah. Um, this is a, a this is like the question that hangs over the whole season. Like, what is your what are the chances that Dwayne Haskins is just okay? Like, what if Dwayne uh, Haskins is like, hey, he's he makes some good throws, but man, like he he throws some goofy picks, and God, that guy was open on third down and he missed him, and oh, he didn't see this wide open guy, and boy, he really. Doesn't get away from pressure, man. I, JT would have never gotten sacked on that play. And oh my God, there was a huge, a huge spot there to run. JT would have run for twenty yards there. Dwayne Haskins threw it out of bounds. Like, it, of course that's possible because anything's possible. What's the percent chance of that? Like for a whole year, not just like the first three games as he learns it. That like you get to the end of the year and you're like, boy, they went they went nine and three, and Dwayne Haskins just was okay. Um, I think kind of low. Like, it's not zero, but I think the only way that happens is if just Dwayne Haskins can't handle it. Like, I, I don't think it's a talent issue. It's just that he can't bear the load of being Ohio State's quarterback, and he gets rattled along the way. But the way he played at Michigan leads me to believe that that's not going to happen. I just, like, if he... He looks so cool in that game, and if you look cool in that game, in that situation, losing in Ann Arbor to play the way he played, I don't, like, what rattles you? I don't know what rattles you. And if the stakes are higher, I guess, because it's now your team and all the pressure's on you and you're not, like, just bowing out the starter who got hurt. I know that's different. Um, but I don't know. He doesn't seem like a guy who, like, for whom nerves would come into play at all. And I think that's the only way that he would be just okay next year. Tim? I'm with Bill 100%, although I think that kind of leads me into a fun tweet that you got, we didn't get to last week from Evan Imel. He has an idea where he says, every time I say I agree... You guys have to ring a gong, and then I have to argue against what Bill just said. Oh! Mm. I'll the, get a gong. The Beelit gong, yeah. Uh, do, do you guys go to BD's Mongolian Grill? Ever? No, you've, you've told me about they it. They have a gong. Yeah. I mean, it's the best part. You And then the good thing is, I think you're supposed to do this. They have a little tip jar for the guys cooking on the grill, because that's where you like you get bowls, and, it's, and they take the food up, and they cook it in front of you. Yeah. So... At least in my family, when you put a tip in the jar, that's when you ring the gong. You ring the gong or they ring the no, gong? No, you ring it. Oh, okay. There's a gong with a mallet. So it's like, it's like, hey, cold, hard dollar bill going in the chip jar. Bong! Check out this guy. He gives tips to guys who cook chicken for him. Bong! Like, wouldn't that be great? Like, if you... At the end of a meal, like you're leaving Applebee's and you're like, twenty two percent, bong. <laughs> it's way more. It's way more authoritative than Arby's little bell. It's like ding 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 ding. Arby's has a bell. Yeah, I think some of them have a bell that you like bring if you if do you think they did a good job. You just go like ding ding ding. Where? Ding, ding. Like by the door. Inside. Inside. I have never eaten in an Arby's. I have never r- rang the bell. If I if I go to BD's, I'm going to hit the gong. 
Do you go in Arby's? Once or twice. Have you been in, inside an Arby's? One time. I go, I live in the Arby's drive-thru. I have never been in an Arby's. When you go in an Arby's, is there anybody in there? No, the one, I was literally the only one in there when I went in there the one time. When you go in there, Tim, are you the only one in there? I've seen, like, anywhere from, like, 6 to 15 people in there. I was going to say, like, you're ringing the bell, and, like, like the three people who are working there are like, thanks. <laughs> There's nobody in the Arby's. Uh, I just can't imagine going in an Arby's. It's like they have the meat, you drive through, you get the meat, and you leave. I don't want to be in the Arby's. The, no. only, the only fast food restaurant I go in with any regularity is the McDonald's near campus, because that's our office. But other than that, I don't. I'll go in. If the drive through line is so long that I think it'd be quicker for me to just walk in, I'll do that. But that's rare. Yeah, I can't imagine if our office was an Arby's. No. I just know how I think of Arby's. I don't want to go in. Don't make me go in. Didn't we, th- didn't we talk at some point about relocating our office to the Chick-fil-A near campus? Or is that still TBD? That I could do that. TBD. Well, the, the, you can't have an office. I don't want to have an office that doesn't have a soda refill place. Yeah. You, you can get refills at Chick-fil-A. But you have to go up front and yeah. say, give me a refill. I don't want anyone tracking my refills. The last thing I need is the government tracking my <laughs> refills. Is there, there might be a robot that keeps track of all that stuff. All right. How do we get on this point? I mentioned the, the gong oh, right. thing. Was, oh, yeah. I'm sorry I took I us into such a tangent. I just had to bring – I was just looking for a time to bring that up because I saw that tweet. I thought it was hysterical. Make sure you're listening to our other Buckeye uh, – not other Buckeye talk. Other Cleveland.com podcasts, Orange and Brown talk, Dan Labe, Mary Kay Cabot. Dan Labe ignited a firestorm. How about him? With a Baker Mayfield observation that – led to a national discussion about whether Baker Mayfield was ready to compete for the starting quarterback job and culminated in Baker Mayfield and Colin Cowherd basically having a professional wrestling match on Fox Sports Radio while, coincidentally, Baker Mayfield has a Fox documentary coming out next month. What a coinkydink. Yeah. You think Lave got a little cash from Fox? Yeah. yeah. it's all. Well, I wrote a column about it and a lot of people read it. So it's all, we all got paid, baby. <laughs> Cleveland Baseball Talk, Paul Hoynes, Joe Noga, talking about the tribe. Wine and Gold Talk, Joe Varden, Chris Fedor. I'm, I'm serious. Like, uh, uh, Wine and Gold Talk right now is crack. It is so good. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so good. You have to listen to that. Subscribe. Listen. It's so interesting. There's so much stuff with LeBron. All I want to do is listen to experts talk about it. And we have two of them, and they just tell you everything they think. Dear Lord, please listen to Wine and Gold Talk. It is awesome. And then Takes by the Lake, it's average. We're going to have a uh, Big Browns discussion next week about whether there is too much irrational exuberance around the Browns. Because I'll tell you what, people people are fired up about a team that went 0-16. Who's the guest for that? I have four different guests. Nice. We're going to have a, a cornucopia. Um, mostly me ranting, though. Chipotle expanded menu before we get to breaking down the Ohio State defense with the Phil Steele magazine. Chipotle is testing in New York markets an expanded menu. They're going to have milkshakes. They're going to have quesadillas. They're going to have... Some kind of avocado thing? What's the thing they're going to have? Okay, it's going to be quesadillas, nachos, chocolate milkshakes, avocado tostada. Mm. 
which would be a great name for a horse, mm-hmm. and an updated salad. <clears throat> Where are you guys on the restaurants? There clearly is a, a, a market for people to do one thing and do it really well. I've been begging for Canes to just just buy a giant bag of lettuce so you can get a salad at Canes instead of chicken with fries. Get the same chicken on a salad so you can trick yourself into thinking you're being healthy. <laughs> it's like the whole five guys in and out thing of like, listen, we have burgers and fries. If you don't like it, take a hike. But in and out you can get your burger on lettuce instead of a bun. Really? Mm-hmm. Sell out. That's a California thing though, right? It's just, Everybody in California. It's like, a, it's like a healthy thing. But... People in California don't eat bread. I've never seen anyone in California eat bread. It's true. Well, I'm doing a thing about I think I, it's going to be out by the time you listen to this about why LeBron shouldn't go to Los Angeles. I'm going to put that in there because nobody in Los Angeles eats bread. Yeah. Stay in Ohio and eat bread like a normal person. <laughs> what do you think of expanding the menu? Is it a good idea? More options are always better. Like Qdoba, you can get a quesadilla and there's a little more stuff than like burrito, burrito bowl, taco. Or is it a mistake? Do you do you is more not always better? And the story I'm reading, and this is all in the New York Times. New York Times covers the world and fast casual food. Yeah. The point that the New York Times made is that a quesadilla, which has to be grilled instead of simply formed like a burrito, like we're an idiot. Here's how a quesadilla is made. Thanks, New York Times. <laughs> Could take up to two minutes to prepare. A lifetime in Chipotle time. That's not true. Some of the Chipotles I've been. What's What's the deal? Do you like the expansion or are you a little worried? Uh, I think in general, I, I, I'm anti-expansion. I do like a limited menu that makes you focus on doing just a few things well. In this case, though, it doesn't sound like they're really... like. The place that makes burritos and tacos is now going to just put all that stuff in two tortillas and call it a quesadilla. I don't think that's much of a stretch. Changing a salad is whatever. Um, chocolate milkshake, I'm out on. I don't need a chocolate milkshake with my burrito. Yeah. I'm, I'm strongly opposed to that. Um, but couldn't you already, isn't some of the stuff already a secret menu item anyway? Couldn't you already get a quesadilla at Chipotle? Yeah. I have ordered a quesadilla at Chipotle. Yeah, so I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's just not going to be on a secret menu anymore. Yeah, but... I could walk in there tomorrow and order one, or today and order one if I wanted to. And I wonder, it's it's could it stuff they already have? It's like take the thing you have. They have all the components to make a quesadilla. Yeah, you have a tortilla, you have chicken, yeah, or steak, you have cheese, and you have a big smusher thing. Yeah. So can you put that together and smush it for me? But I will say, having asked for a full size quesadilla once or twice at Chipotle, I do get nervous. Because it does take a little longer, and I can feel the line behind me getting antsy. Oh, I don't care about that. Way to not operate in society. No, like like we've we've talked before about the social contract, and I I try to strongly adhere to it. If waiting in line for two extra minutes at Chipotle in your mind violates the social contract, I don't care. But but what if but what if that's if there's. 20 people in line and everybody adds an extra two minutes, That's a four, that adds 40 minutes to that line. Yeah, but 20 people yeah. in a row aren't going to order quesadillas, though. Well, they aren't now because it's a secret, but they might start to. They'll I find a way to expedite it. I think it's perilous. What if you had a separate quesadilla line? Maybe. Separate but equal. Well, 
I mean, it, I go to Qdoba frequently because it's actually the close, closer than Chipotle, slightly closer, easier for me to get to. Can we get a map of your house and fast casual establishments around? What's your address? Uh, I'll tell you it. I'll tell you in a podcast that might never happen. What my address is? Yeah, that's going to be the headline. If we did that sometime as a podcast, and the headline was "Find Out Tim Bielik's Address," <laughs> that would be the most popular Buckeye talk of all time. Yeah. Um. I've had I've had quesadillas at Qdoba quite a few times. Um, my experience is like not a lot of people behind me get them, and then like when they throw your thing in in the press to cook it to heat up the tortilla to make it a little more crunchy, you know you still go through line. You still like decide if you want chips, if you want queso. You get your drink, you um, order, and then it's just like they have a beeper, and then someone goes over, cuts it into like three four slices, puts it back down forty seconds, and then like brings it out to you when it's done. So in my in my experience, it's not as that much of a hassle. But then again, it's not like Chipotle where you have twenty people in line. So you yeah, ha- you have to almost have someone kind of standing by just in case. You need a quesadilla person. Have you ever been in a Qdoba that has a line as long as a Chipotle? Never. No, no, because it's worse. Yeah, not even close. So my separate but equal joke was because Trump said that the Space Force would be separate but equal, and everybody yeah. was talking about that it's phrase in the history of America. I don't want – I'm not making light of that. I'm just ta- making a joke about the, the uh, current events. Space Force. Space Force. Um, <laughs> Ohio State Space Force, by the way, in Phil Steele's magazine, is ranked 13th. Rutgers, 8th. Rutgers oh, has the 8th best Space Force in, in the college football. For all you know, Rutgers Space Defensive line two, linebackers twenty one, defensive back six, and then special teams are seven. Any what surprises you about the defense? I would imagine defensive line. I didn't even look. Obviously, Clemson's one, Ohio State's two. Everybody in America would say that. What surprises you, or what did you like or not like about the defense rankings? Uh, I thought the D backs were a little, <coughs> defensive backs were a little high. Um, I'm reading what he has about them. Yeah, like a part of like he he does um he factors in sort of like player rankings coming in or coming into college, and I think like Kendall Sheffield gives him a bump, Jeffrey Okuda certainly gives him a bump, um, but it's like Jordan Fuller, who I think he can be pretty confident is going to be good, and then a bunch of unknowns. So I'm surprised that that defensive back unit is ranked six in the country. I'm kind of surprised that he had special teams at number seven because we've talked about this before, and it's not going to be that much of an issue um, this season with the fact that probably we're not going to get hardly any kickoff returns, how bad Ohio State's kick coverage was for most of last season, where they just kept allowing big return after big return. The Saquon Barkley return in the Penn State game sticks out a lot on my mind in that regard. But, I mean, you're putting a lot on Drew Chrisman, rightfully so, because he's one of the best punters in the country, even though he's the not... Best. He's even though he's not needed that much, if you think about it, and he's not Australian. I know. I'm, I'm sure that part makes you really sad. I've been uh, sitting on a story since uh, April about how he is an honorary Australian. I just haven't written it yet. Stay tuned. Good tease. Did uh, Cam Johnson make you interested in watching more Australian football, like on television, by chance? I'm just curious. No, but he plays for the Birds, so he's a good guy. Did you talk to Cam Johnston about Drew Christman being an honorary Australian? We exchanged messages, and then I forgot to call him, so I have to call him well again. Done. <laughs> you're really you're digging in on this story. Um, top-ranked defensive back group in America, Michigan. So Ohio State is sixth in the country, second in the Big Ten. Um, Michigan State is seventh in the overall ratings. And that's, I think, a point I want to make. And I think we can probably finish up the Phil Steele stuff. There's one more point I want to get to about schedules. But 
Um, Ohio State, I mean, it's just like in, in every unit group, they're like one or two in the Big Ten, practically. I mean, other than quarterback, again, Penn State's Linebacker. first in quarterback. Um, in running backs, Ohio State's third, Wisconsin's fourth. That's the best among the Big Ten. Ohio State is third in receivers. The next best Big Ten group in receivers is Nebraska at 16. So Ohio State is not only third in the receivers, they're the only Big Ten team in the top 15. Offensive line, Wisconsin is one, and Phil Steele talked about that. Ohio State, seven. Maryland, 11. Penn State, 15. It's just that there's just more teams have more holes than Ohio State. Ohio State defensive line, two, Michigan, six, Penn State, eight, Northwestern, 13. Linebackers, Wisconsin, two, Michigan, 12, Northwestern, 18, Michigan State, 19, Ohio State, 21. Defensive backs, again, Michigan, one, Ohio State, six. It's just Ohio State is just up there in basically everything. There's not like a glaring, glaring weakness. Most of these other teams, if they're up in the, in the top 10 in some unit, they're going to be in the 60s or 70s in some other unit. And that's just the reality of Ohio State. And, and it's remarkable that I think it's a two-pronged thing. One is that the Big Ten is so much better than it used to be. They're tied for first in Phil's rankings of best conferences. And the second part of that is but despite that, when you look at the individual groups, Ohio State is just consistently at the top of more groups than anybody else in the Big Ten. And that's just the way it has been and, like, the way it continues to be. I'm a little surprised, like, looking at Penn State. Because Penn State has unquestionably re recruited better than anyone else in the Big Ten other than Ohio State in the last, what, three or four years. Um, and Penn State's position units within the Big Ten – are one at quarterback, four at running back, three at receiver, four at O-line, three at D-line, five at linebacker, five at DB, and four on special teams. That seems low for a team that's recruited as well as they have. I don't know if that's – is that a product of them still being young? I don't know, but I feel like that's not a proper reflection of yeah. Penn State's talent. Yeah. Yeah, but but, but I mean, it, I think it's, it's not, but yet it also is. I think, again, some of the stuff in projections, you, you have to lean on recruiting ratings a little bit. You know, like you said with Ohio State's defensive backs, it's like, well – are they a little high? Well, it's like, well, they have Okuda as their third corner right now. That guy's a top 10 national recruit. You know, like there's, yeah, yeah. there's they don't know exactly who the other safety opposite Jordan Fuller is, but it's going to be a four-star, mm -hmm. whoever it is. So um, I think it is a reflection of Ohio State's depth of talent across the board um, in recruiting, and it ha that has to be reflected in stuff like this. It's yeah. the way it is. Yeah. All right. Why don't we get to some questions, okay. um, and then we'll get to a pizza cheesesteak uh, and roller coasters. Pizza cheesesteak. Maybe poutine. The poutine talk is going to be very brief, um, but we do have a couple questions again. What's the email, Bill? It's buckeyetalkpod at gmail.com, and uh, thank you for those of you who have sent in emails. I, it's, I think it's worked out pretty well so far, even though we have been bad at answering all of them, but that's par for the course. Um, Terry Glime asked a question about Friday Night Lights and like commitments, and I'm hesitant to talk about that because of how early we're recording this. Um, we're recording this on Saturday, even though you're listening to it on Wednesday, so a lot can happen in the in-between. So we're just not going to talk about it, but we'll certainly come back to it after all the stuff shakes out. If, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, 
And like you've heard, like there's been a bunch of commitments off Friday Night Lights and stuff. Like go to cleveland.com slash OSU right now and read the stories we have there. Because they're there. Yes. Uh, Jacob Diefenthaler asked, uh, to me first specifically, can you explain to non-Philly people, um, and he says he's a former Philly resident, how Villanova is not Philly because Villanova is outside the city limits of Philadelphia. Uh, his second question. <laughs> Sorry, that's my answer. Yeah. Um, it's just a joke. I like doing it because people get mad. And it's like, we're, like most of my audience is an Ohio audience, so it's basically pointless. Um, but I think it's funny. Uh, and people who went to Villanova get really mad when you tell them that Villanova is not in Philadelphia, even though technically it's not. It's in a leafy, a leafy suburb. Right? Yeah, and it's like, it's right on the outskirts. It's like if if uh, Columbus was Philadelphia, Villanova would be like in Westerville. Um, I think that's a fair comparison. But I just like making jokes about it because people get angry. Yeah. And if you're from Ohio, you don't care and probably have unfollowed me on Twitter because of it. But that's all right. The joke's worth it. Um, his second question, more importantly, was if you're a coach in the Big Ten and you could pick any Big Ten quarterback other than Tate Martell or Dwayne Haskins, who would you pick? Um, for Ohio State, for Ohio it's State, if you were a coach in the Big Ten, but let's yeah, let's narrow yeah. it down to to Ohio State. It depends. Like if I wanted to be good, I'd pick Trace McSorley. If I wanted to win a national championship, I might pick Shea Patterson. If I had other good talent around, and I wanted to try to get over the top and win a national championship, I would shoot upside. Yeah. If I wanted to like guarantee I was going to win ten games. And have a chance in every game. And maybe I had questions about the rest of my talent. I'd pick Trace McSorley. Because I feel like Trace McSorley could like figure stuff out. But I don't know. I mean, Penn State might make the, the playoff this year. I'm not sure about like Trace McSorley against Bama. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Uh, I would also consider uh, picking freshly added Northwestern quarterback Hunter Johnson. Yeah, not really, but it, he's a five star. If you're gonna, st- if you're kind of starting and you're trying to build a team, maybe that's not a bad way to go. But if you're trying to win right now, I'm taking Jay Patterson. No one's taking uh, Nathan Stanley from Iowa. No. Sorry, Brian. Burns. Shh, don't. He's gonna come after us again. <clears throat> Email from Casey Ward, all the way from Regina, Saskatchewan. That's in Canada. Go Rough Riders. Uh, go Rough Riders. He uh, sent a very nice email about our coverage. Um, we appreciate that. He says he has a son who he named after A.J. Hawk, who's also growing his hair long like A.J. did to donate his hair to cancer. Really? Which is cool. That's awesome. Um, he had a question about the offensive line. He said, uh, do you think they put Thayer Munford at left tackle because Michael Jordan is there to help him out? Uh, Jordan is a three-year starter and will be able to take some of the pressure off of Munford. Um so I think like the offensive line is is still. It was funny we were we were outside on Friday Night Lights. I will say this: we were outside the um, football facility, like out where they have all the trophies and stuff. And Thayer Munford walked out, and somebody made a joke like, "Can somebody just ask him what side of the offensive line he's playing on?" Because I don't think we know it for sure yet. Um, but his question is: Do we think that in the end Thayer Munford will be the left tackle, or could Isaiah Prince, with a full camp, a full summer, retake the starting left tackle job that we thought he was going to have in the spring? What do you guys think? My impression is that if the switch for Isaiah Prince was easy and smooth, they would have done that because right tackles have been moved to left tackle as a promotion all the time. That's often how it works. 
it feels like to me that Greg Stadrawa watched the first week of camp and thought, why would I take a guy out of a position where I know he's good and put him in a position where I'm not sure he's going to be as good when I can just swap Munford? He's young. He's easier to mold. He hasn't started yet, so let's just make him a left tackle now, and let's not risk getting worse at both tackle spots by, let's say, because Prince was a, was a good right tackle last year, right? Do we agree on that? Does yeah. everybody agree on that? Yes. And we think Prince could be an even better right tackle this year, right? So I think the risk would be you put Munford at right tackle, Munford's a sophomore, Prince is a senior, Munford's not as good. You move Prince to left tackle, Prince has played right tackle his whole life. Left tackle has more pressure. It's not as familiar to him. And now all of a sudden, Prince isn't as good at left as he was at right. And Munford's not as good at right as Prince was at right. Yeah. So what you do is you just keep Prince where he is. And that you guarantee that. And then you say on the other side, you know what? Thayer Munford's maybe going to have some growing pains, but we believe in this kid. He's got an instinct for it. He's smart. He's athletic. He worked his butt off. Wherever he put we put him, he's going to get it. But I don't want to risk Isaiah Prince taking a step back by the move. I think the move in the end is more about Isaiah Prince. Because Isaiah Prince wanted to be a left tackle, and I think Stud must have seen something early on that worried him that this is not going to go smoothly. So let's not mess with it. And for what it's worth, I'm looking at back to Phil Sills magazine. Maybe it's off something we wrote or anything like that, but he has Thayer Munford projected as the starting left tackle. Yeah, that's just yeah. Maybe he talked to somebody, but that's what that was the line coming out of spring, so that's not surprising. Um, I do think this the the other point that Casey made in his question about like the guard the, the guard that you're paired with on your side of the line is is important to take into consideration. And Greg Studrawa said this when we were talking about it at the end of spring. He said he thought that Isaiah Prince and Demetrius Knox on the right side of the offensive line really started to gel toward the end of the year. And that's important. Like, you're playing off each other. There's combo blocks and stuff like that. Um, so I think that matters, and it does remind me, too, of in 2014, I'm almost positive this is the case. In 2014, when the season started, Billy Price was the right guard and Pat Elfline was the left guard, and then they flip-flopped them because Elfline had a little more experience, Price had none, and they wanted Price playing next to Taylor Decker. So I think that there is some value in aside from comfort with Prince on the right side, I think there's value in the least experienced offensive lineman and Thayer Munford playing next to your most experienced offensive lineman and Michael Jordan. I'll buy it. <clears throat> Mecca Hanna asks, how we think new special teams rules for kickoffs and punts? Uh, there is no new rule for punts. But new rules for kickoff will affect Ohio State's strategy on special teams. The rule being that if you fair catch a ball on a kickoff anywhere inside the 25-yard line, the ball gets placed at the 25-yard line. So if you get if you fair catch it at the 5, you get to the 25. That's the new rule. How do we think that will change things? Uh, I would love to be wrong about this, but I think this rule means basically the kickoff return is done. Like, we're not going to see any more kickoff returns. So I think it almost doesn't matter what Ohio State wants to do. They can kick in the corner, kick in the middle, kick it through the end zone, whatever they want. Every team's just going to want to start the ball at the 25-yard line because – Ohio State historically has been very good kickoff coverage, pending teams inside the 20. They wouldn't want to take that chance. I mean, the weird thing is, like, they've been good, except they've also been awful. They were awful. Yeah, last year. They were awful. Last right? Year. It's yeah. 
the thing that Ohio State really did that I think was a, a and people have written and said this a big part of their success under Urban Meyer has been they turned the kickoff into a weapon, which is just not how I ever thought of it. I don't know that it, you never did you ever really think when someone kicked off, it never felt like to me before that like oh man, like what's the return team going to do? They're screwed here. Like and and Ohio State yeah. at its best managed to flip it. And that when they were kicking off, they were in control because they were making you return it. They weren't worried about you returning it. They wanted you to return it their way by kicking it in the corner at the two and making you run it out. And like Tim said, that's dead. Now, the other problem is they've been bad. Last year they were bad. So it's like, why would you fair catch it? I'm going to pop one. So I think it's going to be – but I think – you're going to have to have a smart returner back there, but it's like if they, if Ohio State does what they want to do on a kick and they execute it, and it's like a high-angled kick that the guy that's inbounds and the guy catches it at the two, if you see that they've done it successfully, you fair catch it and you've taken their advantage away. If they screw it up and the kick isn't where it's supposed to be, then you return it, and now all of a sudden Ohio State can never have an advantage. So I think... Because mo- few teams had turned the kickoff into a weapon the way Ohio State had. I think it will. this rule overall negatively impacts Ohio State more than it, negative, it negatively impacts most teams. I agree with that. And Urban Meyer was asked about it when I mean, we talked about the job fair briefly. And he really didn't say anything, but I'll just kind of read you uh, the quote that he, that he said. Um, he said, obviously it depends on the team you're playing. If you can create an advantage, we'll return it. It remains to be seen how people will handle it. We're very unique in our kickoff style, so it'll be interesting to see team's philosophy against us. Yeah, the philosophy is going to be just what I said. Yeah. Um, I love this question from Josh Todd. Uh, And we've talked a little bit about this over the last few podcasts, but this is like a different spin on it. He says, you wake up and turn on the TV and there's breaking news. Urban Meyer, Nick Saban, and Jim Harbaugh all announced they're retiring. Who does each respective university hire and why? Alabama hires Dabo. Right, that's the easiest one. They give him $10 a year. Yeah. And he goes. Yes. Alabama alone. Got a ring. Um, let's think. Let's do Harbaugh get next, and then we'll get to Urban last. So that way we can be thinking about Urban while we talk about Harbaugh. Yeah, I don't know. The, I don't, there's not an obvious Michigan tie that jumps out to me. Um, one name that I thought of because he has ties to Harbaugh, and I think like would be the kind of guy Michigan would look for is David Shaw from Stanford. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't think, like, Chip Kelly, but I don't know if Michigan would hire Chip Kelly. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I think Ohio State would. Doesn't, uh, I guess, like, doesn't, Willie Taggart is is Harbaugh's oh, yeah. guy, too, well, he but he just leave, went to he Florida, Florida State. He Florida State. Yeah. I don't know that we know. That's a hard one. Um, like, DJ Durkin has Michigan ties, oh, but yeah. he's not on that level yet. Like, if that no, happens I, tomorrow, okay. he's on that He's level. my vote. Durkin? Yeah. Because I think people think that he's he's recru- recruited pretty well at Maryland. Yes, I think he's he's done. He's on the path people expected. I think that would be. I, that's my answer. Good answer. My answer is David Shaw. I, I think that's a job that could finally get him to leave Stanford. I think Michigan people will want whoever is going to keep Don Brown around or as, around as defensive coordinator. If How about head coach Don Brown, sure, promote him to head coach and make him defensive coordinator as well. Yeah, promoting people above their pay grade always works out. <laughs> And I, I'm not going to answer the other one because I'm going to agree with the answer that you're going to so proudly give right now for Ohio State. That I'm going to give? Yeah. Matt Campbell? Yeah. Okay, yeah. 
I mean, like that situation, because like Tom Herman's not coming. Again, like we've gone through this a million times. I don't think they would. I don't, I don't think Luke Fickle would be ahead of Matt Campbell on that list right this very second. No. Um, People, if you're wondering who Matt Campbell is, and I'm sure a lot of you know, he's the head coach at Iowa State. He's from Massillon, uh, coached at Toledo, has a career record of 46 and 29. Was great at the end of his career at Toledo. Went eight and five last year in his second year at Iowa State, and I truly believe that he will be the head coach at Ohio State someday. And so that might be like shooting low, but. Um, and Urban went to hire him, right? Urban has told yeah. that story that like before Matt Campbell became the head coach at Toledo, Urban wanted to hire him to join his staff. Right, right. So I mean, like you could say Gary Patterson or like some other more established head coach that's out there somewhere. But I think I think Matt Campbell is is proving a lot of things at Iowa State, and that in, in a situation like that, I think that would make a lot of sense. If you can win at Iowa State, you can almost win anywhere except Kansas, because I don't know who can win at Kansas, if anybody. Uh, Ed Warner was on the staff at one of Kansas. Who's the head coach? Was that Mangino? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was... Do you want Mark Mangino for Ohio State? Is he still, is he still alive? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, here's another question. Andrew White says, Ohio State's win total in Vegas is set at 9.5 this year. Is that too high, too low, or just right? And if you think it is just right, where does Ohio State lose its two regular season games? In parentheses, he says, Tim can't say Rutgers. Love the podcast all the way from Wilmington, North Carolina. (laughs) So listen, we can say this in a world where sports betting is becoming legalized. Yeah. Hammer! Hammer hammer the over! (laughs) Take it and run. I was was blown away when I first saw that. Like, so all they would have to do is have the worst year Urban Meyer's had at Ohio State. Yeah. He's never lost three games in the regular season at Ohio State. And the worst year Ohio State has had other than 2011, I don't know, like the last 15 years. Like, wh- what are you looking at that would lead you to project Ohio State yeah, having its worst season in two decades? Other than, yeah, like I said, other than the, the, the chaos year. Like, what? I, we just went through all the rankings. I, I don't, and the schedule, they have four hard games. They're going to lose three of the four hard games? It's, yeah. Or they're going to lose two of the. They're going to split the hard games, plus lose the one you don't see coming. Like I think, like worst case scenario is either split the hard games, or go three and one in the hard games and lose one you don't see coming. But like they're going to lose to TCU and Michigan and Purdue, or they're going to lose to Penn State and Michigan State and Michigan. Yeah, they're going to lose to TCU and lose. Two games in the East, like I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know, I don't know where that comes from. Like if you want to set it at ten, set it at ten. Yeah. So you push on that, but that to set it at nine and a half. If they win nine games, th- this podcast and all of Ohio State football nation is going to be on fire. Like it's, yeah. I can't fat think about what how you would feel if this team. With the third best receiver group in the country, goes nine and three. <laughs> Think about that, and then go place a legal sports bet on Ohio State over nine and a half wins, and you can come back at the end of the regular season, the week before the Big Ten championship game. Whether they're in it or not, we'll be talking about the money that you won. Yeah, I agree. Uh, question from, I'm going to probably make this the last one, maybe. 
Uh, question from Connor Bailey. It's a little long, uh, so bear with me because I think it, it's a good point. He says, everyone is hyped up about or hyped up that the Penn State-Ohio State rivalry is bigger than Michigan-Ohio State right now. And he says, but this rivalry, meaning Ohio State-Penn State, is largely based off a six-point win over a Buckeyes team that finished with a losing record and two freakish memorable moments in 2008 when the fumble and in 2016 with the block kick. Add in a 2017 game where the Buckeyes looked like they won the game by 21 points, but the scoreboard didn't reflect it. If the prior if prior doesn't fumble and the kick in 2016 isn't blocked, do people look at this rivalry the same way? Can it really be a rivalry if the team just shoots itself in the foot a few times and allows the other team to win? Do we agree with that assessment of the Ohio State Penn State rivalry? Is the question is the Ohio State Penn State rivalry bigger than Ohio State Michigan? He he Connor is suggesting in his question that people at the moment maybe that's the wrong way to term it, but. People are more juiced up about Ohio State, Penn State, and like the importance and what that game signifies right now than they are Ohio State, Michigan. And he thinks that it's overblown a little bit. Essentially saying that Ohio State and Penn State are not on even footing, and the only reason people think they are is because of a couple fluky plays in the past that have allowed Penn State to beat Ohio State. No, I don't think that because I mean the 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 double overtime Bosa sack game at Penn State, like Ohio State won it, but that was awesome. Mm-hmm. Ohio State won last year, but it was crazy. Yeah, I don't disagree. Like, like uh, he says, it looks like the Ohio State could have won the game by 21 points, but the scoreboard didn't reflect that. Like they were getting stomped on for the first half of that game. I, I thought that was it was it was one team dominating one half and the other team kind of dominating a fourth quarter. But I don't think Ohio State looked like a three touchdown favorite over Penn State in that game. I mean, they they've played some really close games the last couple of years. I I. I I think it's hard to phrase anything in in terms of the Ohio State Michigan rivalry because the thing that we found and, and we pushed this a couple years ago with the Ohio State Michigan State rivalry because Michigan Michigan State has actually beaten Ohio State a couple times which Michigan hasn't done. The Ohio State Michigan rivalry is the Ohio State Michigan rivalry, and it's not. It's just on some level, and we had fun that week making a point about it. But on some level, there's no point and comparing Ohio State-Michigan to anything else Ohio State does, because that's not about anything other than tradition and the deep embedded feelings that the fan bases have for each other, especially Ohio State towards Michigan. So like that lives, but you have to admit that the fact that this rivalry, the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry, basically for three decades now has been incredibly lopsided. For half the time it was one way, now half the time it's the other. I hope and pray we get to the point where every year Ohio State Michigan is up in the air, and they they go five and five against each other over a ten year period, and it's back and forth. That's when this rivalry is going to be at its best. But I don't think we need to disparage. So I'm taking it out of the equation. I think the Ohio State Penn State rivalry is legit. I think testing it without Saquon Barkley is part of that. Yeah. But these have been crazy games the last couple years. Yeah. So like to to say that well in fairness so like. On top of it being Ohio State-Michigan, so have the Michigan games. But Penn State's been crazier, more crazy, crazier. Uh, I mean, I know that the spot, there's a, like last year's game, last year's Ohio State-Michigan wasn't quite as crazy. No, but it was a tight game with... But Penn State was, five was bonkers, super bonkers, bonkers, sure, bonkers. Sure, And And 16 Ohio State-Michigan was nuts, but 15 Ohio State-Penn State was like... Ridiculous, and they and so, so was sixteen Ohio State. I mean, the last three, the last three Ohio State Penn State games. Three of the last four. 
What are the crazy years? 14 was double overtime. Uh, 15 was when they wore the black jerseys and beat them pretty soundly here. Okay. And then uh, 16 was block kick in last year's crazy game. Okay, so 14, 16, 17, all completely nuts. Yeah. At a high level. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think the Ohio State-Penn State rivalry is completely legit, and I think Penn State's back, and I think that's going to continue. So I would not I would not downplay Ohio State-Penn State at all. If the question is, is saying some people are hyped and they shouldn't be about Ohio State-Penn State, Which I think it, you should be. Yes, I yeah. think that was the spirit of the question, and I agree with that. Yeah, it'll never be Ohio State-Michigan because nothing will ever be, but... Penn State, Ohio State always has some crazy moments, even going back even further. I think 2008, you mentioned the fumble. I'm not sure exactly what play that was, but I remember Penn State having that vaunted spread HD with Daryl Clark and company, and Ohio State really shut them down until backup quarterback Pat Devlin won the game on a quarterback sneak. 2005 was the Tom Bahali sack on Troy Smith, the sack fumble that ended the game. There have been weird moments in the Ohio State-Penn State rivalry, and unlike Michigan, Penn State's gotten Ohio State a few times at least I count at least four since 2000 in the last 15 years that Penn State's got Ohio State it may not it doesn't have the historical significance of Ohio State Michigan because Penn State's only been the Big Ten for about less than 30 years but when it comes to competitiveness the two best teams of the Big Ten right now and the two best teams of the Big Ten for the last few seasons it's Ohio State and Penn State the thing that's nuts like when we talk about this is that like for instance Michigan, Ohio State, and Michigan State. This is a story. Let's write this down. Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan State have all played crazy games with Ohio State in the last five, eight, ten years, right? And Ohio State has been bitten by both Michigan State and Penn State. But Michigan never did it other than the game of the bad year which was a close game and the pass was on DeVere Posey's fingertips. Like Michigan, that Michigan hasn't won any of the crazy games. That's the thing that like, so Michigan State has the wins. Michigan State has the 2015 win with the field goal kicker running around the field waving his arm. And Penn State has the block kick where they got over the top. And there are also games where it was tight, but Ohio State found a way to win. Against Michigan, Michigan hasn't won any of them. Tyvis Powell makes the interception. They don't get the two-point conversion. They're short on the spot. They don't get it. Like, they've never gotten over the top. They've never, they have not beaten a fully formed Ohio State team in over a decade, and they've played some close games in there. That's the thing that's nuts about it. That they've yeah. gone over the, cl- they've, yeah, they've been close. But Penn State and Michigan State have won at least one of them. Michigan hasn't won any. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Write that down. I'm writing that down. Write it down. Okay, I lied. Two more questions. Um, Ed Hockenberry emailed in. He said, if you had to pick any head coach from the Big Ten to replace Urban right now, who would you choose? Matt Campbell. After (laughs) Jim Delaney annexes Iowa State. Um, If I had to pick any coach in the Big Ten to replace Urban, maybe Pat Fitzgerald. I mean, if you gave Pat Fitzgerald this talent base, Pat, Northwestern just got a five-star guy from Clemson. They just built a gigantic facility at a place like I don't know how Pat Fitzgerald got Northwestern to build that. 
And I would say this... Is it the nicest practice facility in the Big Ten? It's pro- it might be one of the nicest practice facilities. It's like facilities. on the beach, right? It's on the lake. Yeah. And I say this, people don't know this, I went to Northwestern. They basically built, there used to be a little cool area on the edge of campus where you could go like hang out. And they said like, yeah, nobody's hanging out there anymore. We're just building a giant football building there. <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess, thanks. But Northwestern should suck. Northwestern should be awful. And so the fact that like Northwestern has reached a place where like people are, Northwestern fans are like aggravated sometimes when they only go eight and five. It's like, are you drunk? It's Northwestern. They're supposed to be two and 10 every year. So that he has done that consistently and raised the level of expectation and he competes in recruiting a little bit. And now they're competing in facilities is bonkers. If he went somewhere, if he went to Michigan or Ohio State or a place where just there was more of a tradition there, I, I would be very curious what he would do. I would also take Scott Frost, I think. My answer is Scott Frost. Because I think, like, D'Antonio, I think, is an obvious answer. Uh, uh, the stuff that's going on at Michigan State aside, like, he's clearly a good football coach. I think you need a little more than that. Um, Fitzgerald's a great coach. I think you need a little more than that. Um, Franklin, I don't think, would do well here. And, obviously, you're not going to hire Jim Harbaugh if I'm coach Ohio State. Um, I think it's Scott Frost. I think he has the right balance of recruiting ability, coaching, and the, like, I don't give a crap attitude that I think works well here. And like we'll t- we'll welcome all comers. We'll beat you. I like I like it the way he carries himself. My heart wants to say Jeff Brom because I'm envisioning you give Jeff Brom this offense, and you he just comes up with all you kinds. Love of- Jeff Brom, man. I, I'm a, I'm on like I think Jeff Brom is one of the most creative coaches in college football, and you know the fact that he took Purdue, that which was probably the worst team in the Big Ten in 2016, and took them to a bowl game and won it, pretty significant, and. He's. I'm looking at the recruiting class. He's already got, you know, 19 players committed for 2019. A top 100 kid, I think, granted, is from West Lafayette, if I remember correctly. Um, like, my heart wants to say him, but I think in the end I would have to go uh, Scott Frost, like you said. I mean, pedigree at UCF, phenomenal. Turn a winless team into an undefeated team in just a mm-hmm. few seasons. Um, I think he could, he could do wonders if he was given an Ohio State job. I'm I'm. A, Really interested for what he's going to do in Nebraska. Gong! Make a case for Kirk Ferentz as the Ohio State head coach. That's the thing, because he agreed. You said Scott Frost. He agreed. And now he has to make the 180-degree case. Why Kirk Ferentz is the best candidate to replace Urban Meyer by Tim Bielek. Go. Kirk Ferentz has had NFL experience. He's He's worked in the NFL before, and he always seems to maximize talent. You know? Name a fi- there's only one five star prospect I could think of that Iowa has gotten that I can remember, and that was in last year's recruiting class. A guy, a guy named AJ Epinesa at defensive end, and still he got he, at one point he got to an or he won an Orange Bowl with Ricky Stancy as his quarterback in 2009. They played Ohio State towards the end of the regular season with a the Big Ten title on the line. He had a backup quarterback named Matt Vandenberg, who had never started a college football game they almost beat ohio state if it wasn't for devin barkley you know in overtime kicking that field goal you know iowa maybe goes to the rose bowl that year and kirk ferens eat against the best teams <laughs> i can see you guys are both holding back laughs i'm just waiting I, for it to be over i can't i i'm gonging you i'm gonging you every time from now on i can't believe i gonged you and you pulled out aj epinesa and matt vandenberg <laughs> 
See, that I, was unbelievable. <laughs> you were com- you were completely prepared for that. There was an old FS1 segment way back in the day. I looked this up after I heard it. It was called Pardon the Contradiction, where I think it was like Katie Nolan, who now works at ESPN, would start to argue a topic. Someone would ring the bell, and mid-conversation, she had to switch to the exact opposite version of the take Ooh. within 30 seconds. So it was like three or four times you had to switch your tone in the middle of that. That's ex- that's it. That's really what I thought of as soon as I saw Evan Imel's tweet. You've often been called the Katie Nolan of this podcast. So I'm yeah. gonging you from now on. Can I want to ask one more question. Yep. Yes. Um, and then we can talk about the Philly taco. Yeah. Ohio State would be really good at punting if Kirk Ferentz is the coach. Uh, <laughs> Ryan. It's Sul- I'm Sully. I'm going to guess his last name is Sul- Sullivan. Sent in a question. He said, if Buckeye Talk were a movie, who would play you guys? Um, and then he, of course, said Seth Rogen would play me. Um, he says he thinks the actor who plays Tom Hammerschmidt from House of Cards could play you. You know who that is? I don't. You watch House of Cards? I don't actually watch House of Cards. Okay, I'm going to pull him up and see if you know what it looks like. Um, I don't know what his real name is, and I don't know who else he's played. Um, and then he said, uh, who plays Tim and who plays Ari? I think I would be Hugh Jackman. You know this actor? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know who that is. How old is that guy? I don't know. I don't even know that what guy looks like is. he's 60. I have no idea what Look that like. guy up. I was going to say Will Ferrell, because I would take my shirt off and kind of be flabby and run around. <laughs> His name is Boris MacGyver. <laughs> Boris MacGyver? <laughs> that's, not, that's not a real name. <laughs> that's my... That's my porn name, is Boris MacGyver. Boris MacGyver? <laughs> that's my... You know uh, what I what do? What name. <laughs> My porn name is Boris MacGyver, and my specialty move is the Philly taco. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, how old's that guy? Uh, he's 56. He's 56! I'm 44! Yeah, he's not, he's not... He was in the Pink Panther in 2006. <laughs> All right. What? He was in a couple episodes of The Wire, a couple episodes of Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Seth Rogen, I guess, would play me based on voice, and Boris MacGyver can play Doug. Uh... I Tim, you're, I you're Hugh not, Jack- you are not Hugh Jackman. Okay, then maybe I'm the guy who played Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, I was thinking like John Heater or uh, like Michael Sarah or uh, <laughs> Michael Sarah, Jesse Eisenberg. What about? Uh, uh, I'm basing that mostly off. Oh here. yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What about who said? Didn't someone say you look like Post Malone? Post Malone can play. Who you I just, just found yeah. out who someone that is. in high school. I was like when the movie Superbad came out. Everybody thought I looked like I told people. I admitted people like. Thought it looked like the guy who played McLovin. Oh yeah, the twenty-five-year-old Hawaiian organ donor. Yeah, it's like an Irish R&B singer. Um, Ari will be played by the kid who played Goldberg in the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little loud laugh. I'm sorry. That was a loud laugh. I'm sorry. I broke. I broke someone's car stereo just now. Okay. All right. I That's like it. this website called Atlas Obscura. They write about like weird stuff in the world. They wrote about this as part of their Gastro Obscura segment. The Philly Taco, it's wrap a slice of pizza around a cheesesteak to create this decadent mashup. And uh, the other names of the Philly Taco are South Street Sushi and the Lorenzo's Gym's Challenge. So this is like a real Philly thing. It's a quick little story on it. The Philly Taco has been called a turducken for drunks and stoners. It's also been called... I thought the turducken was a turducken for drunks and stoners. (laughs) It's also been called a great idea. 
So basically, there's a there's South Street is like the sort of like hangout bar area in Philly. Like if you want tourists. to see the weirdest collection of people you've ever seen in your life, go hang out on South Street on Philly. So basically, there's a there's a late night slice place where you walk up to a window. I've been there. You walk up and get a slice. I have not had pizza from Lorenzo's. And but it's I pretty have, good. I've heard of it for sure. And then you walk down the street to a cheesesteak place, and then you wrap the slice of pizza around the cheesesteak. It was invented by two guys, and then the story says. One of the guys has since become a vegetarian since inventing this. <laughs> How does it sound to you to wrap a slice of pizza around a cheesesteak? Um, like, I don't think I would just do it based off principle because it just seems gluttonous. And though I do like to eat, I don't like to do, like, I don't like mashing up foods like that. But I will say, um, I do enjoy a, a pizza steak, which is just a cheesesteak with mozzarella cheese and pizza sauce on it. So this is essentially the same thing. You're just also mm. adding pizza crust. Which yeah. is just like adding more roll. So I don't think it would taste bad. Um, as long as you don't get cheese whiz on the cheesesteak. Um, it probably tastes good. It's, just, it's a lot to eat. I don't think I could eat. That's a lot of carbs. That is a lot of carbs. I believe in the phrase, too much of a good thing. And th- I mean, cheesesteak's good. Pizza, great. Combine them. No, that's that's a little much. You know what I would do? Is I would get a great, big, gel- delicious cheesesteak. And then I would get three little slices of square pizza and just place them on top of the cheesesteak. Or I would just set myself on fire instead of do that. Mm. If you can't wrap a slice of pizza around your cheesesteak, it's not real pizza. Have you ever had cheesesteak pizza? (sighs) No. Delicious. Tim, how many roller coasters did you go on in four hours? All right, well... Me and my fiance went to Kings Island Thursday. In case you missed last week's podcast, I was not here last week. I was on vacation. Technically, you're not here this week. Yeah, sure. I'm not here right now. This is just a this is a pre-recording that's Michael Sarah. He came in on his week off to do Buckeye Talk because Phil Steele was here. Yeah, that's the that's the power of Phil Steele. I came here on a Saturday on a Saturday morning, which I still have off technically because Phil Steele means that much. Serious. I'm dead serious. Phil Steele also sounds like a roller coaster. Did you, ever, did you ride Phil Steele? Yeah, yeah. That's a sick one, Phil Steele. Coming soon to Cedar Point in 2020, the Phil Steele. I would ride that. And if you like, as you were going through, there were like different like college football things that popped up. That would be like a super popular ride in Ohio. Yeah, um, I'd be all about that. Yeah. But uh, we went Thursday morning to Kings Island. I was listening to you guys on the podcast, small aside, but. The big thing that we went there, it was supposed to be a lot of rain in the forecast, so one sure what we are going to be able to do. Um, we got on nine roller coasters in four hours, and most of them had no weight. Nice. Which, I, I love going which, to which, theme parks when there's raining in the forecast. People get chickened out, and it's great to get the whole park to yourself. Yeah, the only downside is for two of the rides in particular, Mystic Timbers, which is their new wind roller coaster, and the Banshee, which if you guys, for those who have never been to Kings Island, imagine the Raptor, but much faster and better. There have been a lot of potential porn star names on this podcast, including Boris MacGyver, Mystic Timbers, <laughs> and, and Phil Steele. Yeah. <laughs> um, and on those two coasters in particular, it the heavens open up, and it's when you get when you go sixty miles an hour, it's one thing. It's normally fun, but going sixty miles an hour in a, in a downpour is not fun because you get pelted in the face oh. and you can't oh, yeah. see. Yeah, like admittedly, I like we talked about this. I would have loved to ride Mystic Timbers when the sun was out to actually get an experience of what that's like. But when you have when you can't really see, you're like moving a you like can't even like figure out what's going on. It just makes another experience. Like I can't even open my eyes. Like I need goggles. Like, give me, like, a pair of industrial goggles um, 
when that happens. And the last ride we went on was Banshee, the inverted ride. We sat in the back and going up the hill, you, I just got soaked. It was it was brutal, but all in all, a good time. And again, nine roller coasters in four hours can't beat it. You didn't get sick. No. Have you ever puked after riding a ride at an amusement park? No. Have you ever puked, Landis? Uh, yeah, I can't spin. Like yeah. I can't do like the tilt a whirl or teacups. So yeah, I got sick off the teacups one time. Yeah. The uh, uh, I would be worried if I was on a roller coaster when it was raining. I would be worried about it careening out of control and killing me. Yeah. It's yeah. slick. It's slick it's out slick, there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're built to last in those things. Um, I once rode a roller coaster 13 times in a row without getting off. Really? Yeah. That's it. How old nice. were you? Like maybe 10, 10 or 11 or 12. At it the shore? Jersey Shore, uh, Wildwood. Um, it's called the Great White. It's a wooden roller coaster. It's still there, I believe. Um, they have... You should just be all tickets, and that's the only way you can get on rides. And then that year, I think, was the first summer that they instituted wristbands. It's mm. just sort of like all access. It's like going to a normal amusement park now. Um, you can just go, come and go as you please, and they don't have to get tickets. Uh, we went at noon when the rides all opened, so there was nobody, literally nobody in line. So my brothers and I got on the Great White and rode it 13 times without unbuckling our seatbelt. We just sat in the same seat and kept going around 13 times. <laughs> um, I also rode a roller coaster at Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey called Nitro. That steel coaster doesn't go upside down, but it's super fast and it's pretty high. Um, I went on that three times in a row without getting off because it was a rainy day, like Tim described. It was there for a school trip. Didn't have to get off. Went on a three times, third time blacked out. Really? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is there a roller coaster that you would not go on because it would be too scary? Or would you go uh, on anything? I've uh, gone on the Super Duper Looper in Hershey Park, which is like one of the first upside down roller coasters that doesn't even have a shoulder harness. It just has a lap bar. Yeah. And it was built 100 years ago. And if you can go on that, you can go on anything. Tim, is there a roller coaster that would be too scary for you? No. Have you? I got to ask you, Bill. I know you've only been in Ohio for a few years. Have you gone to Cedar Point yet? Uh, I went maybe 12 years ago. So like I was, I think, in high school when I went. So I have not been in a long time. So you missed They all. were building the dragster last time I was there. Whatever it's called. I'm, I have to go yet this summer. I know I'm kind of running out of time because I really only have until like... It's big, June! You're not running out of time. But Don't I, shorten the summer on me. I only have like till like the beginning of August when we get to talk to the players again to like really make a, make a pilgrimage to Cedar Point and probably back down to Kings Island. You can go time. tomorrow. Yeah, go... Some, no, some, summer ends on July 23rd when Big Ten Media Days start. So you have a month. So let's not sell that short, but you don't have till August. You've got to go before then. That's Buckeye Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm scared of a lot of roller coasters. I'm scared of a lot of roller coasters. You don't do them? Like when you go to Disney? I do like mild ones. I do all the ones in Disney because there's not any super crazy ones. I was going to say, what's the craziest roller coaster in Disney? Like a rock and roller coaster? Is that still Yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. There's one, there's one, there's like a, the Abominable Snowman's there and you go up and then you go backwards for a little bit and stuff. But like, oh, yeah. I don't backwards like the like multiple loops. Like the, yeah. There's the Hulk one at Universal Studios. That was too scary. Love it. I love so that good. ride. Isn't it scary, though? It's great. It's awesome. But what about being scared? That's not scary. Yes, it is scary. You don't have time to be scared on a ride no, like that. No, of course you have time. I have time to be scared sitting in my chair in my basement. Yeah. There's one in Six Flags. Now we're going to talk about roller coaster for 45 minutes. There's one in Six Flags in Jersey. It's called, like, Superman Ultimate Flight. And you sit down like a normal roller coaster, like the ones where, like, you're, the inverted ones where your feet hang and there's a shoulder harness. And then you sit down. They lock you in. 
And then I'm describing this using my hands and people are listening, but then it moves back and puts you in a flying position so that your face and stomach are parallel to the ground. That's ridiculous. Roller coaster. No, that's, that's ridiculous. The, that's the, cause, cause it gives a little bit. Like it, like that. There's like a, a hard harness and then a the softer one in it, and the softer one gives a little bit once you get flipped. Once you get flipped on your belly, um, that's the most scared I've ever been on a roller coaster. Cause you, the hill, the first hill is a head first dive straight to the. No, ground. why would yeah. you? But the, I, I would pee. Don't you pee? I didn't pee. No. I People would, pee on that, don't prob- they? Probably. For sure, you would pee. I, I want to ride that roller coaster. No, no. What? What is the? No, I no no. This okay. We'll can talk about this later. <laughs> fear. Fear is not my friend. I spend most of my life avoiding fear. I'm not paying $89 to go on fear or fearful things nine straight times. Bill Landis, 25. Tim Bielek, Doug Maurice. Those are our Twitter handles. Follow us there. Send us questions at Buckeye Talk Pod on Twitter or to the email address, which is what? BuckeyeTalkPod at gmail.com. So, um... This one we got recorded a little bit early. You're listening to it on the normal Wednesday slot. Next week's podcast, uh, Landis is going to be gone because he's going to be on a little vacation, but also covering something really cool for you guys. Um, so Tim and I will be doing it, and we're going to start running through the roster. Tim and Bill have been doing our reverse countdown of the top 50 Ohio State players. So we're going to look at like the first 25 guys on that list and delve into the roster a little bit. So you know we like to do a lot of goofy stuff. But we're we're starting to get to the point where we're going to really start digging in on the Buckeyes because um, college football will be here before you know it. So thanks, as always, for listening. If you want to drop a five-star review, we would be forever grateful for that. Again, we have a couple things popping, so stick with us here on Buckeye Talk. We're going to be uh, announcing some things hopefully coming up. But for now, for Bill Landis and Tim Bielek, I'm Doug Maurice. And that was Buckeye Talk. 